0: On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture.
1: Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin couchman and at Brad Kelly. All right, and we are back with another action-packed episode of the podcast about the dark side of creativity, Art of Darkness. I'm Kevin Couchman, joined by my partner in crime,
0: Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing really well, man. Uh, I am ready to go. I have been reading James Joyce's bio for the last month straight, it feels like. So I'm ready to go, man. I am, I am dialed in. I am buckled up. Um, well, we, you got ahead yeah. of things. I mean, this is gonna. What's the episode about James <laughs>
1: Joyce? Yeah, I Your brain is all scrambled. Else. You're telling it, the story out of order. Everything yeah. is disjointed. Yeah. yeah. And we yeah. have a very special guest. Do you want to introduce our guest? Yes. For the, uh, show. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, people who listen to The Art of Darkness probably um, already know our friend Aldous Asterion, um, host of the magnificent uh, Forest of Symbols podcast. He is going to he is going to help us with. Uh, duties tonight uh because he 's a he 's a he 's a joyce fan um and also i kind of couldn 't Get through Finnegan's Wake is ultimately. <laughs> 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 you brought say, in a ringer, is what you're telling right, me. That's what I'm saying. Um, and that's no, that's no disrespect to Joyce. That's that's a that's a that's a fault of mine. Um, let me let me say right up front. Um, but you're one um, of the few. I mean, come
2: on. Everybody's yeah.
0: <laughs> read Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> the, the notorious speech read page Turner. That's right. Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. So um yeah, so we're gonna, you know, we're we're gonna get right into it, I suppose. Um, and we'll start with uh our classic question, Kevin. What do you know about James Joyce? Ah, uh, what do I know about James Joyce?
1: Uh, Irish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh I missed I missed, think, I yeah, missed that yeah, part in the, my prep. So, sort of the the great prince of modernism, uh mm-hmm. ornate, very uh, heavily, ma- like kind of a maximalist, modernist, uh, long, difficult novels, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, uh, The Dubliners. Um, is, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, is it just Dubliners? It's just Dubliners, yeah. Dubliners, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, stately plump Buck Mulligan. We have yeah. the, the great <laughs> Ulysses, which all sorts of scandals and uh, yeah. lots of high highbrow, lowbrow, high society, is this art, etc. Yeah. Um, conflicts and things. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the, the great crossword puzzle of a, of a novel, <laughs> uh, Finnegan's Wake. I also yeah. know Joyce and Beckett, we're pals. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's so, a story
0: there that we'll get to as well. Yeah, for mm-hmm, sure. Yeah, yeah Beckett so, uh, Beckett kind of worked with him uh, for a while. Actually, mm-hmm. and was a friend of the family. Yeah, um, there yeah. there you
1: go. Yeah, uh, and then of course the the very naughty 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 letters,
0: uh, which I believe <laughs> which might we're, come. We're, up. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we we'll we'll, uh, we'll tease them a little bit, and then and then we're going to get into those in the in the after dark for for patrons only. Yeah, um, th- yeah. that's that's pretty much what I know. Yeah, I mean and that's that's all that's all true. Um a couple little notes on that I think just in terms of legacy before we really jump into it. I think James Joyce might be the most uh claimed to have read him author. Whereas where people <laughs> yeah. say they read it um and and didn't really. Um, and, and and understandably so for all the reasons that you say. I mean, um we'll talk about it like there were famous writers of of renown at his time who spoke highly of Ulysses but couldn't finish it uh including including Yates and some others so I still um, feel like at this point I am claiming
2: to have read
0: Joyce. (laughs) yeah I read Ulysses and then I listened to there was a podcast that was just going scene by scene in Ulysses every week there was like a five to twenty minute episode and I literally just read the book and he would have an episode about something. I don't remember that happening at all. I don't know what he's talking (laughs) about. Is that the
2: Frank Delaney? Yeah, Frank Delaney, yes. Yeah, Yeah. that's really good. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think that he died and unfortunately is not able to finish the whole book yeah
0: somebody's needs to pick pick that up that yeah
2: might be, uh, that might be a job for one of the
0: three of us kevin you're up i think uh, for, yeah for oh, okay <laughs> i'm not doing it <laughs> mm. so um so generally how duties are i think are going to work here and, and this is a this is a i was almost going to say an international effort but not quite we're but we're in three time zones here the three of us doing this so um we're gonna we're gonna tackle it the best we can generally i'm gonna do the bio stuff and um we're gonna lean on our our special guests to kind of talk of the books but of course there's gonna be plenty of diversion and and fun stuff in between. So, right, and and a
1: little bit of housekeeping. The show is at artofdarkpod.com. You can find us on Twitter at @artofdarkpod. We're now accepting crypto donations by request, Floki to Valhalla. If you mm-hmm. want to donate uh, crypto, you can you can do that on the website. And do it on a dip, if you don't mind. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll take whatever you want to send along. Whatever crazy coin you want to send, we'll take it. Uh, right. Please don't dust my wallet with garbage. Uh, but but there's another great way to support the show, and that is through Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. And Patreon subscribers get extra episodes. We call these After Dark, and that's where we get really, really rough and rowdy. We keep a, an extra story that's uh, particularly spicy. And I believe, Brad, did you already hint this a little bit? A little uh, bit, yeah. We're yeah. gonna
0: talk. Uh, we're gonna talk some intimate details of Joyce and his wife. Uh as reflected in the wonderful and floral writings of Joyce to her so yes um, yeah. and so that's a great place to go to support
1: the show these shows uh, obviously we're not getting money just straight out of uh, the the, uh, the either so if you su- if yeah. you want to support independent media support the show Patreon is a good way to do it patreon.com slash art of dark pod alright Brad let's go James Joyce Dublin Woo! where am I put me in, yeah. in time and place
0: okay yeah, yeah. Go. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna set us in James Joyce is born in February 2nd, 1882, but I'm actually going to start us sort of in 1904, and there's a really good reason for this, but I want the listener and Kevin and Aldous to kind of imagine, we're just going to kind of get ourselves in the mindset here. So um, it's 1904, it's Dublin, it's a city of 400,000 people, which is about the size of Minneapolis, apparently. Um, So big city for the time. Um, still wracked by trauma of, of of you know of oppression by by the English, um, some of it very very fresh. The um, eternal Anglo. Yes, yeah. So you're James Joyce. You're 22 years old. Your uh, your name, the name Joyce, means almost nothing to anybody but you at this point. You're standing by the River Liffey. Um, which you would later use in your work to mean time and femininity and life. And you would become eventually so good at, at the at, you would master the metaphor to the extent that you can make anything mean anything. So, right, you're very, the sort of primordial writer at this age of 22. Um, and you know that you're a genius, but you haven't really done anything. You're just a poor Irish kid. Okay. So you tried to live abroad. It's 1904. You tried to live abroad a couple of years earlier and you literally got homesick and couldn't fend for yourself and had to come home. Um, you, uh, you're the oldest son of a man who's basically become something of a joke around town, a lazy tax collector who couldn't even really manage that. Um, who that dragged-
1: is the best, that is the best kind of tax. collector. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I agree. That's why he was, he had a lot of friends. People really liked him. Just quit. <laughs> right um you're the oldest child of 10 and your dad your entire life your dad has been dragging you from one borough of dublin to another just trying to stay one step ahead of his debts right um your your mother has died the year before 1903 um and while you loved her and depended on her for her affection you're so arrogant and so resentful of catholicism that even when she asked you to come pray by her bedside you refused right? resentful so. of the one true faith brad yeah yeah see oh. see to to joyce catholicism was fine if you were in france or someplace else but in ireland catholicism was like black magic oh yeah mm. it's interesting we'll get mm. into that a little bit too um and now I said your name doesn't mean anything, but people do know you're smart. They might not really think you're a genius, but they know you're, they see something going on with you, right? You've met Yates, who even though you offended, somehow would want to do favors for you for the rest of your life. You've met Lady George. Um, You've met um, George Russell, who went by Ash, A.E., who was a well-known poet at the time. Um, And they know you mostly because you're this sort of clearly intelligent hot-headed cocky arrogant kid that's how they know you at this point and they all kind of see you've got potential but you haven't really done anything yet right um now You're standing by the river. We're kind of, hang on here. Uh,
1: Uh, You're painting a wonderful picture. This is what I'm going Uh, for. (laughs) I'm really getting it. Yeah, and you're using uh, the, what is it, the second person. I really appreciate
0: the the effect there. I'm trying to keep your attention, Kevin.
1: You are. You really, you've got my attention. We Mm -hmm. are kind of in uh, Oscar Wilde times. Yeah.
0: Correct? I don't don't remember Oscar Wilde's years exactly, but uh, he would be, he would be, James Joyce is either the tail end of, of Oscar Wilde's generation or the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. um, So now, okay, so you're on the, you're on, you're in Dublin, the banks of the River Liffey. Now, one day you meet this woman as you're walking Nassau Street, which is this, this road, the street's still there. Now you can get like a Starbucks there and buy some like American shoes, but uh, you're between the River Liffey and the bay. And this tall, young, auburn haired woman is walking along with a proud stride and you get to chatting with her. And this is Nora Barnacle the ridiculous name of Barnacle. And now, Kevin, her surname is, her surname is Barnacle? Barnacle. Wow. Kevin, clearly she
2: was a Joyce character already. He invented her.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And there were jokes about how clinging and like, you can't get rid of a barnacle, right? Like that's what a barnacle is. Yeah. Even, even James's father said that his father was like, the bottom
1: of the the boats is a
0: a barnacle. Right, right, right. right. Just clamps on and it's there (laughs) forever. Right. It's like the simp of the ocean. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Now, um, uh, You uh this is a couple days later, you start exchanging letters with this woman, and a couple days later you guys meet um on June 16th of 1904, um, and take a walk around Rings End, which is a a notable story in Joyce's life. And what you don't really know, of course you don't know, is that a hundred years later, um, on that exact day, June 16th. The literary and artistic and high and world is going to have a festival in your name, right near where you have this date. Right? Bloomsday, Bloomsday, correct. Bloomsday, Bloomsday, yeah. and and, yeah. and Bloomsday would be the setting, would be the day in which the entirety, essentially, the entirety of the book *Ulysses*, um, sure. that great masterpiece, mm-hmm. happens. So, so I like this where he's posed in time here. Um, so. One kind of comment about Nora, and and this is going to play in later, much later. So if you can remember this one at the end, I think it's you're going to see a loop here. Um, Joyce said something in a very early letter to her that really st- 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 kind of stuck out to me as playing on or suggesting what Joyce's sort of psychological needs were. He wrote, is there one who understands me? Question mark. And what he was saying is, he met Nora and he thought, maybe there is finally somebody who gets me, right? She's, she's, he thought of her as being sort of pure of soul and he thought that when she looked at him, she actually saw him, mm. right? And he felt like nobody had ever done that before. Now, whether that's true or not, we're gonna maybe kind of find out. So, um, I kind of drop out of that whole second person thing. I just wanted to get us in time and place and kind of know who we're dealing with and get us into his head a little bit um but there's so now kevin you mentioned dubliners and i don't know if you've read dubliners the -hmm. joyce that i've read
1: uh was a valiant attempt at ulysses uh which i'm afraid uh i may have failed at and but i've i have read portrait of an artist as a young man uh the rest of it i'm not familiar with yeah
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so um well i think we i think we're gonna kind of start I want to kind of start with Dubliners with a little bit of bio and then I'll just want we'll start this kind of discussing this book um the the story how it came to be is really curious James had written a bunch of stuff essays and reviews and poems and things like this at that time but in 1904 in the same year he meets Nora a little bit later in the year his friend uh Ash that's is George Russell George Russell um had suggested said to Joyce you know Hey, uh, I I work in this thing called this magazine called the Irish Homestead. And if you'll send us a story, we'll give you a pound for it. And we publish it. We'll give you a pound for it. Um, And it's the Irish Homestead is a magazine about like agricultural society. Right. (laughs) Um, And so so Ash had asked him to write something simple, rural, live making and pathetic. That is something you could have sympathy for the characters in um, and which would not shock the readers. Um, Joyce delivers the first version of his story, The Sisters, which would go in Dubliners, which wouldn't be published for the, as a book for many, many years. So, Aldous, Dubliners, I don't know what... what If you can start to tell us about Dubliners a little bit.
2: Yeah, well, um, Dubliners is a portrait of Dublin, as Joyce saw it at the time. And his view on it and we'll as we'll go through it we'll, we'll, the career we're going to realize that you know Joyce had a ton of criticisms of Dublin but he never stopped writing about it so you know whether he left or stayed his he mentally he was always there yeah. um, but I think Dubliners is hugely critical of this place and essentially he believes that it's a place that you cannot thrive in, that one way or another, it's going to trap you and pull you down by many, many different you know avenues of defeat. And so, uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but Dubliners is a collection of 15 short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really connect to each other except thematically, but thematically they form a pretty coherent statement, I would say. Um, and you know, Kevin, you mentioned earlier the word maximalist, and I think that Mm -hmm. that really fits Joyce. Um, but, um, and especially if you come to this from the later books, you might be surprised at the style of Dubliners, um, because it's actually somewhat more minimal. It's, it's actually kind of closer to, um, somebody like Hemingway, Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of its style, it, it actually works by subtraction rather than addition So he'll leave key things out and and leave Uh you to guess uh, Mm -hmm. at certain things. And there are also these like odd kind of enigmas that Joyce starts putting in there and he'll do this, you know, throughout his books until they just sort of pile up on every page in Finnegan's Wake*. But like an example of this kind of in in embryo is um, the story Evelyn um, in Dubliners, where we have uh, a, a young woman who's, um, she's trying to decide whether she, she's 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 met this young man and he wants to marry her and take her to, I think it's Argentina or someplace like that. And she's excited to get away, but then she also is attached to her home. But she's living with her dad because her mom had died, and her dad is showing the early signs of becoming like an old abusive drunk, right? Um, and so there's but there's a flashback to her mother on her deathbed. And her mother has gone crazy. Before dying, and she says this phrase "deravon saran," and she keeps repeating it. And it's like it's like pseudo Irish. Mm. It's a word phrase that kind of, and I forget what it sort of sounds like, but it like kind of sounds like maybe a couple different things in Irish, but it doesn't really mean anything, Mm. or maybe it does. It's one of these things that people you know write about, like it's something you can sort of theorize about, you know? Right um so yeah that's uh that's dubliners and he also structured it um in a way where the stories um fit the stages of life so the early stories are from the perspective of children and you've get slightly old, you know young adults adults and then finally the very last um story is uh probably the most famous story of the collection called the dead and this deals with uh with social life in a broader sense but then also as it says the dead and um this is kind of an interesting aspect of joyce that isn't really commented on so much but um, he's very famous for his sexuality that he puts in the books but as i was going back through um I, I preparing for this i went back i read dubliner's portrait, um not all of ulysses but kind of a lot of the major chapters in the book and i was kind of surprised at how death is a fairly constant undertone in a lot of uh a lot of his work yeah he has a sort of a uh, yeah he has a fixation on it i think
0: right I, and and I mean justly so I suppose but yeah it does kind of run as a as a theme through throughout um, and it will even you know some of it is kind of presupposed by the structure there's something about even portrait of an artist as a young man which we'll talk about more but it's like you start out in basically in you know infancy or even before that like, like battling as a baby mm, at the beginning of that one uh, if yeah I recall. But, but even yeah. like there's something about doing that that indicates like oh well then this person's gonna die to me there's like and maybe i'm reading too much into it but it's like
1: ah uh, no right sort of the perfect circularity of everything yeah we turn yeah. to where we were and everything yeah
2: yeah
0: yeah so he's
1: definitely- well, isn't
2: that mm-hmm. go ahead aldous well, he's interested in all the stages of life and all the aspects of life and um, and death is is actually one of those. And uh, specifically, he is interested in the way the memory of the dead is with living people, you know, all the time. So that's yeah. Mm. That's a theme in the dead, and
0: the the dead is a masterful short story. I mean, that whole book, Dubliners, is, is is pretty great. But Wait, so so he turns is... into this agricultural journal. He he yeah. sends the Farmers'
1: al- <laughs> Almanac for yeah. Ireland. Uh, yeah. a short story that's about a couple of sisters. Like what?
0: Yeah, I'm not super familiar with that, so I don't remember that story. Okay, that's very right. Did well. he get a pound?
1: Yeah. Did he? Did he? Yeah, his he did. Money? He did. Oh, and good. They, okay, he he's a professional writer.
0: Yes, yes. They published the next few stories of his, actually, hmm. Um, hmm. and then and then at some point it came to be like, listen, these are good, but this is like not what we do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we've got like old ladies sitting in farmhouses, like they're looking for like you know. How can we melt down our wax into a new candle? And here you are, like you know. And Joyce was like, "Look, this is not what anybody does, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No wonder. No one wants this. Of course, you don't want it. Um, yeah. So, so the and I find it, I find it perfect that his first collection he decides to name Dubliners. I, that name came along later and was probably proposed by his brother Stanislaw. But um, like you were saying, Dublin, he never, he leaves Dublin, Joyce does, but he never really leaves it. He's completely preoccupied by um, Dublin means something to him g- deeper than geography. Um, even the places he would live, he kind of, he favored them in their relationship to Dublin. Um, so, this, so
1: this attitude that he has toward Dublin, is it that he thinks it's provincial is it that he thinks it's
0: backwards or is it something else? It's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of um, he, so he, he, it's interesting. So he, he flip-flops between sort of despising the Irish character and loving the Irish character. Um, Which is a very
1: itself, a very Irish Irish thing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he resented Catholicism, but in the same token, he, he would criticize the pope for not being for not being christian enough you know he he had a complicated relationship to everything that he resented um he was also hypersensitive to the point of paranoia about betrayal right and and i think you can get a sense of this if you're born i, I have a little bit i want to do on the context of being in ireland at joyce's time that i think will help i think it might be interesting to people if they don't Know much about Irish history, um, and I think it also helps us understand where, why he might have this love-hate sensitivity, resentment, and also understanding of of um, of Ireland. Um, so he's born in 1882, as we said, um, and I'm not going to go super far back, but I want to just give us give us enough to kind of get where he's at now. Um, about 80 years before Joyce's birth after centuries of, you know, struggle and conquest and revolution and enslavement and religious conversion and war and, you know, chaos, ultimately, in Ireland, the Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland were merged to create the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, which sounds nice. It's like, oh, we're all going to be friends now, right? We're all going to work together. (laughs) Um, But that's not how it actually worked. Um, The English and you know people would probably push back at this and i'm trying to paraphrase and i'm losing a lot of details but the english at the at that t- after that time kind of used ireland as their breadbasket. it was like we'll industrialize and become a sophisticated society and you'll just grow us crops and then it'll all work out fine right and i'm not speaking s- specifically about dublin here but ireland in general um and because of that, there was, a, there was a, a perspective from English society that the Irish are all, you know, backwards and, and uneducated, you know, mostly because they never sent them any money to te- get educated. Um, <laughs> and then there's the, there's the Catholicism <laughs> business as well. Well, uh, and that's, 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 that's ah. big too. The English yeah. never, uh, the English sort of didn't trust the Irish because of how Catholic they were. Right. They always were, they were papists, right. So they were, they were never and quite.
1: Is, and this of course is Brad Kelly giving you the, <laughs> giving right. you this, that's yeah, right. the lowdown. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hey, I'm getting revenge on, I'm getting revenge for my, for my ancestors right now. Yeah. There so, you go. um, so because of the sort of breadbasket city dynamic, um, mm-hmm the big, 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 big event in Irish history in the, in the sort of, not in Joyce's time, but in the memory of, like Joyce would have had family members he knew the names of who were involved in this, was the, the, the great famine of 1845 to 1851. Um, Partially, this was a a result of a potato blight, um, but really there was a potato blight, but there was also an enforcement of monocultural agriculture by the English. It was like, you guys have to just grow potatoes. That's all you can grow. Again, I'm exaggerating. That's all you can grow. Oh, and oh no, there's a potato blight? Well, I guess now you guys starve. That was sort of the thing. It was like they'd been forced to grow this one crop. That crop got a disease. When everybody started to die and starve and flee the country, the English said, "Well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, guys. Like, what's your problem? Well, just because you're lazy and you like to fight and drink, you can't handle this situation." That was sort of the attitude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where and is then, your God now? Right. And then as things went back, it was like, "See, the Irish were everything we told we said that they were." Right. So, so that's kind of that was kind of in Joyce's like I said, 1845 to 1851. Um, you lost. Um, Due to death and immigration, emigration, I should say, there was about 3 million people. The population of Ireland went down by about 3 million people. That is remarkable. That mm-hmm. is not that big of an island. It's not. When your biggest city by heads and shoulders is 400,000 people to lose 3 million people in a in small, fairly small geographic area, the, the population of Ireland didn't recover until like the 60s, some of the counties until the 2000s um so yeah you know. these are these are my people too on my right.
1: mother's side as well yeah. so yeah, With yeah this, so, this uh, podcast is representing the hibernian <laughs> threat we are right showing our hand yeah,
0: here. yeah. Mm-hmm. so so now that's all before joyce is born but when joyce is born this is has this has led to a um a rise in irish nationalism and a kind of a push for irish independence um now this is still we still see this like this exists at least into into our memory and things like the irish Repub- republican army and all of that um yeah the, yeah the crying game
2: yeah yeah it's mm-hmm. all yeah. still kind it's of the there and movie. it's just it's yeah. just
0: gradually fading is all
1: um it, it's still very much in play too though i mean if you yeah. if you spend time in great britain it's very much alive sure. and of course you have the whole it's a whole thing yeah of course yeah
0: yeah yeah and so um one other thing so now to place Joyce in this, Joyce's family was uh, politically what you would call a home rule family. Um, they were generally in favor of, of Irish independence of one stripe or another. There were a lot of sort of sectarian arguments about what form that should take, what steps are okay to take in order to get there, right? You know, you've got sort of peace ah, nicks mm-hmm. versus like, well, let's just kill everybody attitudes. There's definitely a little bit of both of those. Um, uh, but so that's, that's kind of happening in Joyce's life. Um, he resented though. So he was generally in favor his a family hero was this guy Charles Parnell, who was one of the most outspoken voices for Home Rule. And the Joyce family, I think I read that the Joyce family had a picture of, of Parnell in their living room, right. So this was uh, pre- ever present in their minds and Joyce had a relationship to it. Later on, I think he would say like he didn't respect the violent revolutionary aspects of it either. But it was sort of like, well, you want it to be out from under the English thumb, and you also don't want to take any of the steps. It's like, where do you actually fit into all of this? Mm. What's your, you know, you just kind of don't want to. You kind of don't want anything. Um, But I think what you see there in Joyce's whole, you know, leaving Dublin is like he, if he didn't leave Dublin or didn't leave Ireland. He was always going to be part of this dynamic there's no way to is a, a loop that had
2: no exit point unless you literally left the country um, and also, I have a pretty good yeah. quote that's related to oh, yeah. um, this subject and it's it's from a portrait of the artist you know not to mm-hmm. skip forward no, too much right. here but I, I think it's relevant um, to Dubliners actually you know to, to, to read Dubliners in this light. And uh, it's Stephen Daedalus, the the hero who is essentially the young James Joyce, um, who's the uh, hero of portrait. Um, But he says, uh, when the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. Um, And he's talking to one of his young student friends, a close friend of his um, but everybody around him is caught up in national revival, um, you know, Irish identitarianism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Joyce, uh, although he he wasn't in favor of the British rule, he he had, an, you know, as you were laying out there, a really um, ambivalent or ambiguous relationship to all of these things and all of these institutions. Um, but, you know, so Portrait is about the attempt of an individual to fly by the nets. Dubliners is just about the nets. Right. No, that's really well put. Yeah, that's that's,
0: that's, that's exactly right. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's Joyce's attitude towards Ireland at the sort of socio-political or the political level somewhat, but there's also his resentment of the Catholic Church. And then, he also had an issue kind of with the people to be honest. He, there's one thing he, he thought of Irish virtues as a fraud, like the whole, like uh, he wouldn't get married to Nora for a long time. And they kind of, they kind of were slightly deceitful with their families about that. But he thought all that was nonsense anyway. Um, and he had, he was that way about a lot of like social rules and conventions. So he thought their virtues were a fraud. He thought, um, he thought that their sort of high-minded moralism was essentially cruelty, and uh, there's a quote from the from the um, from the Richard Ellman biography, which is fantastic, um, that he thought of um, their their purity, so-called purity, was really a masquerade for a timid onanism. Which oh, I, <laughs> which I loved. So
2: yeah. yeah, she was so, going to replace with a bold. Onanism. Yeah. Just, you just put it right on the page. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Quite good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had no patience for, he had no time or patience for purity whatsoever. You know, that wasn't, I mean, I landed, that's one of the difficulties he had in getting things published and whatnot. Um,
1: so uh, this, this business about identitarianism and everything, how germane is that now that that line about the net rings, just as much true now as it as it does it did then, I imagine. Yeah. In a lot of different ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they certainly want to sort of trap your identity in amber as a as a creator, as a writer. You're, right. you're, not, you're not what you make. You're the whole of what you are, and and it's right. very invasive and confessional now. Uh yeah. you know, in a way where it's there's a certain, like kind of modeling quality to what they expect, right? You have to yeah. splay your guts out, and it's not enough just to give people art you have to give yourself away to right. uh, somehow. And, yeah.
0: and I think, I mean, yeah, and that's a good point. I think there, this is never quite, maybe, it's, maybe it is, but I don't see it quite laid out on the page so much, but it, I kind of get the sense from him that he wouldn't, he wouldn't. part of the reason he would resist being Irish and, and, and being Catholic was he didn't want to have to, he didn't want to have to identify as an Irish Catholic. Like he wanted to be right. James Joyce. And so right. just because he happened to be Irish and he happened to be Catholic, none of that matters. So he, I think he pushed, I think that's a part of the reason he pushed against that stuff so hard.
1: It's much like Sarah Kane in that episode. Yeah. We, yeah. There's the letter where she talks about how she's,
0: there is no such thing as a woman writer. I am right. Sarah right. Kane. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, let me give you a, I want to give a little con- more context. Just we're, we're still trying to understand who this guy is. So, um i've got a description of his father his father was a total character and i kind of i kind of love him and hate him (laughs) why Um, am i not surprised at all (laughs) right (laughs) so let me give you this description uh, of him um it's not super long um now there are issues with him he wasn't he wasn't you might not call him a good man ultimately um but he was he was an interesting guy, and James James loved him. Um, uh, and this is about John Joyce from the from the Richard Elman biography. Uh, this reckless, talented man, convinced that he was the victim of circumstances, never at a loss for a retort, fearfully sentimental and acid by turns, drinking, spending, talking, singing, became identified in his son's, son James's mind with something like the life forces itself. His expressions such as, with the help of God and a few policemen, or like a shot off a shovel, or twixt you and me, Katarish, and the like echo in James's books. He appeared in them more centrally, in fact, than anyone except their author. In the early stories in Dubliner's The Sisters and Araby, he is consider- considerately disguised as an uncle. In the later stories, besides contributing to Farrington, he is also in Henchy, Heinz, Kernan, and Gabriel Conroy. In a port- portrait of an artist, he is Simon Dedalus, described by his son Stephen as having been a medical student, an oarsman, a tenor, an amateur actor, a shouting politician, a small landlord, a small investor, a drinker, a good fellow, a storyteller, somebody's secretary, something in a distillery, a tax gatherer, a bankrupt, and at present appraiser of his own past. Um, so that's the kind of dude, that's the kind of dude his dad was. Um, he's kind of a man of chaos a little bit you know and the mother's the mother's the mother's side was the mother's side was different from that she was more from a musical he, he family sounds like he was wrong. down the pub oh yeah on the yeah, reg yeah yeah and yeah. yeah. every t- night we take a little he, stroll he would tip him yeah. back for sure and and as time went on he became he became abusive and angry and sort mm. of disdainful about what had happened to him he had been um he had participated in local um local politics Um, a relative of John Joyce's was actually the Lord Mayor of Dublin in James's lifetime. And um, they had unseated somebody from a committee or something, some old timers, um, somebody from like the Guinness, because the Guinnesses were very involved in in Irish politics at that time. And because of John Joyce's work, he had been given a lifetime role as a tax collector, which um, was a good paying job and allowed him to kind of go around and glad hand people and seem like he was important. And eventually he would have that job stripped from him in the shifting dynamics of double politics. Right. mm. And after that, it was just gradual dissolution. Just, you know, this is a sidebar, but boy,
1: what would you give to be part of the Guinness dynasty dynasty? (laughs) Talk (laughs) about a
0: fun family. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Just the name, right? That's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, uh, I guess one thing we we'll talk about. I do want to get more into portrait of an artist as a young man um, because it's a sort of it's a great book. Um, but I'm thinking there's a couple more things I want to hit because there's a really big moment also in 1904 when James and Nora leave Ireland. Um, he's and, very young still then, right? Oh yeah, he I mean he's 22 yeah. years old. Yeah, okay. yeah. He, he's, right. a, he's a young guy. He's out of college. He did go. He he did go to university. He studied he uh, Trinity. English french um i don't even know i am not sure if you went to no he went to university college which was I, i'm not even sure if that's the same it might be the same thing i think trinity yeah. eventually took over university college or something okay. like that all right yeah um so yeah so he and he did fairly well in school though he was a little bit of one of those guys who only paid attention to what he wanted to pay attention to but but he was we got the best those are the best guys <laughs> well, you the D
1: student i love that yeah
0: this is the thing you have to establish like whether you think ulysses is a great novel or not right whether you actually like his writing or anything there is no way to question the fact that his his iq was you know just raw intelligence verbal intelligence was about as high as you can get without your brain exploding right (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) so so he did extremely well in college in fact up until a few a couple years after college the only money he ever really made was when he would win some academic competitions as a grade school boy they would have like these tests they would give and he would win them and he would get you know five pounds or something um so he might have been like the smartest guy in ireland for all we know or, or very close to it um so yeah, he went to, he went to university um, and in 1902, he would, he, or sorry, yeah, 1904, he and, he and Nora, who fell into a pretty intense relationship really quickly, would, would move out of Ireland um, in October of 1904 and essentially never move back. They would take a couple visits, um, Nora more than, than James, um, but once they were abroad, they were abroad. was their that was their thing james wanted Mm. to leave james not only james was sort of driven by two two or three things or more one is he didn't want to be in ireland and the other was he thought that his destiny was to venture out and have this sort of artistic life right he wanted to fight off all conventions and so if he went someplace else he could reinvent himself um so um now that I think, Aldous, tell me if I'm wrong. I think Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man ends when S- Daedalus m- moves out of Ireland. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Well, he's about to. He's okay. The last lines of the book are basically his declaration to you know go abroad and live this okay. life. Yeah. Uh, exactly as you as you laid it out there.
0: Yeah, and well, this is the thing, James. Nothing James wrote. Well, it's all fiction, right? But. Everything is drawn from, from real life. All the characters are drawn from real life. Almost all of the events are drawn from real life. All of the places are. Now, Finnegan's Wake, it gets a little more complicated because you're saying, well, okay, what's a real influence? What's, you know, but through Ulysses anyway, it's, it's pretty much all drawn from real, real people. Um, he would even write home to aunts and uncles and say, can you go down to such and such street and tell me, is the boot shop next door to the candle shop? Or is it the hardware store that's next to the boot store? Like that level of detail. That is so
1: fascinating. I never would have guessed that he was writing these things while he was away, given the attention to detail. That is, I find
2: that fascinating. Yeah, there's a a section of Ulysses to to just briefly jump ahead to that Mm -hmm. um, that he wrote, basically looking at a map in dublin and I, I think i read that he also had like a stopwatch and i don't know how he like recreated this exactly but it was very important for him to know this is the wandering rocks episode for mm-hmm. people who, who have read it how long it took to walk from place to place in this yeah. area that he was writing about so. yeah
0: yeah well especially if you're going to write a novel of that density that's all set in one day you know it, the, yes. Yeah, it's got. To, you've got to be. And he actually was very, very concerned that these things were. It's, it's, it, it's, it's hard to describe. So Ulysses is this crazy book. People can't read it. So you know, so on and so forth. But he was very concerned that it could happen that the factual details of the world either did or could happen. He was his own continuity man for the film. Mm-hmm. Nothing right, must be right. out of place. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Accurate. He, he hmm. wrote another relative asking. Um, there's a scene in Ulysses, I don't remember the details, but he wrote asking anyway, like, um, I know there's a gate in this park. Do you think an average person could climb that gate? Like, just to get... (laughs) Whereas me, uh, you know, I write stories. I would just make it a gate someone can climb. Like, what,
2: like, what are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> like,
0: yeah. <get> <laughs> it's
2: so, like Joyce wanted to be when, able to literally step into these books and live in them when he yeah. was writing them. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, so maybe this is a good time to kind of dig
0: more into portrait of an artist as a young man. Sure. Yeah. Um,
2: so portrait is generally what you would call a Bildungsroman, right? It's, um, and and that's the novel of uh, the education of a young man, the formation of their mind. it's uh, actually a more specific subcategory called a Künstlerroman. I don't know. I guess oh. this is this is a very big German genre. It's ja, a wunderbar. Kunstler-Roman, it's just, yeah, Wunderbar, Künstlerroman. Yeah, German <laughs> names for these. But uh, yeah. although in the normal version of the yeah, it's, it just translates as artist's novel. Mm. Um, usually, what happens is they they have these ambitions to be like a special um, important artist, and by the end they settle for being just a common person um it very much does not happen in portrait of the artist right. um you know so portrait is um the story of joyce's well joyce's uh you know author insert here stephen dedalus uh, he's not probably identical to joyce um but he's fairly close close as mm-hmm. we're gonna get mm-hmm. um and so this is Stephen Daedalus and you, you know, you might recognize the uh, the last name there as being drawn from the um, Greek um, mythic constructor of the labyrinth and the uh, builder of the wax wings for Icarus, um, uh, Daedalus. Um, so that's, you know, very symbolically appropriate. He was speaking before of the attempt to forge wings in order to fly past the nets set by Dublin, um, this, this labyrinth for Joyce and um, actually might be worthwhile to just uh, read the beginning of it to give you a sense of what he does with the, the style here, because so each, book that Joyce wrote the four major works are like a revolution in form and he he does one thing and then he never goes back to it he just keeps developing and just like exploding out the possibilities of literature so he has the collection of short stories dubliners and then he moves on to his novel um which he's going to he's going to point forward to what's going to happen with the modernist novel so let me just uh let me just read the first page of how Portrait opens up. Once upon a time, in a very good time it was, there was a moo-cow coming al- down along the road, and this moo-cow that was coming down along the road met a nice little boy named Baby Taku. His father told him that story. His father looked at him through a glass. He had a hairy face. He was Baby Taku. The moo-cow came down the road where Betty Byrne lived. She sold lemon plats. Oh, the wild rose blossoms on the little green place. He sang that song. That was his song. Oh, the green woth botheth. When you wet the bed, first it is warm, then it gets cold. His mother put on the oil sheet. That had the queer smell. His mother had a nicer smell than his father. She played on the piano the sailor's hornpipe for him to dance. He danced. Tra-la-la-la-la, tra-la-la, la di, tra la tra-la-la-la-la, la 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 so this is, a, this is a different way for, for a book to open up. Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, and it's not, it's, not the,
0: um, it's not really the stream of consciousness density that I think people might expect out of Joyce, and it's not, it's not the kind of work that was coming before him either there's and, and it's purposely done but i always thought i remember reading that and knowing this was sort of early on in his career of the bravery of writing like i'm gonna this is what i'm going to write i'm gonna write borderline baby talk right um you know at the as beginning my of a
1: novel as well yeah. who yeah. has the was there anything like it before in literature really i don't, think so. I don't, I don't think
2: know so. Now maybe somebody could come up with something, but boy. Yeah. So what stylistically, what I think is going on here is um, so you have um, what's called free and direct speech, or or sometimes free and direct discourse, and it, it actually goes back to like the early nineteenth century. Um, somebody like Jane Austen would do it, um, where it, it's it's kind of a meeting between the the narration of of the third person narrator and the thoughts of the, um, wh- whoever the character is that, that is being described um, without introducing it, going, you know, he thought to himself, you know, it just kind of throws out the thought there that's in their mind. But this would only be used sporadically and for very short periods of time uh, or, you know, space in, in the books. And what Joyce does is he essentially writes almost the entire novel in that style. Mm. And then second, the the other thing that he does is he makes the prose match. Obviously, Stephen is a little child in the beginning here. And as Stephen grows, the complexity of and the the type of narration changes along to match his mind. And so, yeah, I think there had never been such a merger between the the, the narration and the mind of the character. And so it's not yet... Um, stream of consciousness, you know, that would later be explored by Joyce and several other modernist writers. You guys did an episode on Virginia Woolf. So, you know, of course, she was working along the same lines. It's not quite there, but it's pointing towards that. Yeah. You can see the first, you can see
0: the first kind of scratching the surface of getting towards that, that, you know, he's, he's merging the form of the, of the work with something a little bit closer to how a human psychology works. Yeah. What year is that going around? Portrait is more like uh, 19... 1910? You know, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Something right around there.
1: Yeah. Now, are we yeah. at this point, are we
0: influenced by Freud? Is that going around yet? It's starting to. It's it, It's... Freud and Joyce and, and Jung are contemporaries with them being uh, a bit a bit older than him but not by a whole lot. Um and, and in fact uh Joyce would meet Carl Jung actually and uh yeah. spend some time spend some time in the room with him. Um, Freud
1: is going to be that episode is going to be <laughs> wild.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well it's interesting it's interesting that you bring that up because um Joyce Joyce was skeptical of psychoanalysis in general, both the Freudian and the Jungian strains of it, um, kind of thought it was ridiculous, but also was like, in a way, in terms of the the process of sort of discovering the human unconscious, um, to me, it feels like he's right in there. He feels almost like a colleague to me. Um, yeah, without a doubt. Know, and, Virginia Woolf, too. Right. And mm-hmm. Virginia Woolf as well. And, and yet he was like, I, I'm never going to sit in the chair. Like, I don't know what these guys are doing. I don't know why they're doing it. Um, uh, but he's doing, he's in the sense doing the same thing as them. Um, yeah. Well, you know. I'm trying to put myself into the mindset of, somebody
1: who is a literary agent or a literary world person <laughs> and they, you get dumped this and this right. is what you begin to read. What, right. What do you even what do, you think, think, do with right? it? Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. There was um portrait of an artist as a young man came out of um, an earlier work that he'd written called Stephen hero, which is essentially the same, uh, similar story, but, but not as uh formally, planned out or formally, formally structured, um, and he tried to get it published in an in a, in a, a Irish literary journal that was just starting up, and, and the way you read it, and it sounds like it's just some people he kind of knew, some other people his age had started something, um, and he submitted it to them, and they were like, well, we don't, we don't even understand what this is. Like, <laughs> it's it's <laughs> nice, I guess, James, but like, I don't know how, I can't publish something that doesn't make any sense to me. Now, were they um, living in
1: Paris uh, when he was working
0: on this? Where no, were so, they living? Yeah, yeah so let's, let's, let me, I'll get us kind of on track here biographically, because uh, the first place they moved to, it's kind of odd. Um, and here's where we'll get a little bit of the sense of betrayal that, um, that Joyce experienced. So um, he leaves uh, Ireland, and he had paid this woman for a tip about how to, uh, at a, a teaching position at a Berlitz school in uh, Zurich. Now, I don't know if you guys know, a Berlitz school, it sounds like a very European thing. It actually started in America. It's a franchised uh, uh, language school. Um, The idea was he would go and teach English. So he paid for this tip. He gets to Zurich, and there's no job. Um, And I think this feeds into Joyce's sense of being betrayed by Ireland, right? Like, Uh. I was supposed to go here. I was supposed to have a job. It was all lined up, and, you know, you guys hosed me. Um, but they take sympathy. The Berlitz school takes sympathy on him. They send him first to uh, Triesta. Turns out there's no job there either. Then they send him to Pola. Um, they're not there very long. But eventually they do get to the city of Trieste, which is um, now it's part of Italy. At the time it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's on the east. It's it's the the you know the the. Um, is that the Adriatic that's just west of, of the, the boot of Italy? I think that's the Adriatic. It's sort of on the opposite coast, very far north. It's on the west Oh yeah, shore of, of the Adriatic, very far to the north. It's now part of Italy, but at the time it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and they, they, so they moved there for James to teach in the Berlitz School. Um, and they'd be there for quite a long time. Now, Joyce once they get there, he immediately feels kind of trapped and it takes him a while. Eventually, he sort of comes to have a certain degree of affection for for that city. Um, but at the time, he's starting to feel kind of trapped. He's with Nora. He would always love Nora, but uh, this is the thing. It's one of the weirdest matches in all of art history, in my opinion. Nora Barnacle and James Joyce. Nora <laughs> um, Barnacle! <laughs> <laughs> listen, So so she... Um, let me read you just a little bit from the Elman biography to give you a sense of what it was like. It, not not a sense of what it was like to live with Nora, but a sense for each of them what it must have been like to live with the other one. Um, because so here here you've got James Joyce who's going to essentially reinvent literature in a certain way in a certain way, and I don't think that's I don't think that's unfair to say. Um, but this is this is Nora early on in their relationship. Joyce's writing baffled her. The thought that sentences could be framed with varying degrees of skill was new to her and on the whole unacceptable. Joyce read her, read her a chapter of his novel, that'd be portrait, uh, but noted impatiently in a, le- in a letter to his brother, she cares nothing for my art. When he copied his epiphanies from a notebook on into his new chapter, she asked frugally, will all that paper be wasted? He set her to read Mildred Lawson, the first story in Moore's celibates, which ends with a woman ruminating in bed, almost as inconclusively as Ulysses or a story in Dubliners. And she complained that that man doesn't know how to finish a story. Mm. <laughs> she didn't understand. She didn't get what he was doing at all. In fact, at one point um, they were sort of arguing and she wrote him, this might've been back in Dublin. She wrote him a letter sort of apologizing and it was very affectionate. And he knew that she had taken it out of um, a letter writing book. Like you could buy a book that would give you oh, phrases and she yeah. took it out of that and she didn't think anything of it. She was like, this is nice. So why don't I just put this in there? And he was a Seinfeld
1: episode uh, that uses that as oh, a really? plot point. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> right. I remember that one. My, de- my dearest, uh, it pains me to write this letter, but I must confess, yeah, this yeah. boilerplate yeah. template, right. like a lawyer grabs something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so
0: she sent him one, a letter like that and he was just like, don't ever do that must have really bothered him. Right as a writer like Like, wow yeah right so she never she didn't get it she never got it she Mm. literally never got it until he was in the grave and then was like you know what i think he might have been a big deal like (laughs) that's how long it took so she was a very this is the thing about nora she was a very I, i there's no i think she was smart i think she was witty she wasn't particularly well educated um she was from the country she was from galway it was a city of a town of four thousand people you know she hadn't had much school she was as young as he was and they were just an odd match you know they just didn't didn't they didn't have anything in common ah,
1: really. ah but if you subscribe to the patreon <laughs> <see, laughs> patreon.com art of dark pod you will
0: see there was a there was a certain tie that yeah. binds that yeah. uh,
1: that uh, kept kept them together i think yeah
0: yeah yeah there was there was a um, couple other things on the Nora point, and then I want to bring in um, what I think, personally, I think, is the darkest, not the darkest thing about Joyce's circumstances. This is Art of Darkness, after all. But the darkest thing that James ever did. And it stretches out for years. But one thing we got to hit on Nora, um, because it comes up in The Dead, um, his great short story at the end of Dubliners. Before she met James... Um, Nora and her hometown of Galway and this might have been why she left Galway to move to Dublin um, she'd had a suitor who she'd quite liked named Sonny Bodkin um, Sonny Bodkin was you know, a handsome guy from town but he was a little nervous and was a little shy um, and during the very early part of the courting phase he died of tuberculosis hmm. um, and as James kind of learned this he couldn't bear the thought of the fact that she had like loved another, you know? Um, Also James couldn't bear the thought that she saw James as just another guy. Like she couldn't hand, he couldn't handle being sort of lumped in with everybody else. Um, And there was a sort of a sexual component to that as well. Right. Like he was very, James is very concerned about whether or not she had had, had relations with sonny bodkin right? we've
1: got a real ego on fire here oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> this is a heart. okay all right i mania. mean it is yeah. is this ego mania is this he's the eldest son yep yeah uh and right and yeah. he's also yeah Eldest son, but also a young man. He's very he's young he's still. Young, yeah. I mean, yeah. they moved to okay. they move
0: abroad. He's 22, 23 when he first when you know when, when he oh, settled my God. in Trieste, he Must have been insufferable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, he was yeah. convinced he was a genius. So this is one sure. thing, and we'll back up a little bit. When he was in Ireland, this would have been in like 1900, he just went around pounding on doors of literary figures in Dublin. Right. Um, the guy who gave him <laughs> the Irish home the guy who gave him the Irish homestead, uh opening um, Mm -hmm. for people who know are deep into the modernist literature this is George Russell. He just went to George Russell's house 10 o'clock at night and pounded on the door and was like I'm James Joyce. <laughs> so after this ep-
1: after this episode, the three of us all we need to just DM fifty blue checks right. Right.
2: after this yeah, episode. let's do it. Yeah. Let's- <laughs> Swamp it. We're very much in the wild.ian I have nothing to declare but my genius territory. Yeah, he's right here he's he's, he's he's like
0: that. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think there's something that a, a guy like Joyce maybe required a little bit of that attitude. It's like you're this dublin kid you kind of you, you know let's give him some credit in the oppression olympics like the, the, the being a being a kid from dublin with no real family name is is kind of rough it's hard to get your your it's hard to get your footing in the world when you especially when you know you're just as smart and capable as anybody else you know
2: well we can talk about this a little bit later maybe or yeah. maybe not but even after he wrote ulysses i think there was a little bit of um begrudging of him among, from some of the English literary yeah. establishment people, if you read what Wolfe wrote about um, Joyce, oh, yeah. it's kind of a. She acknowledges yeah. his talent, but she kind of just doesn't like him and thinks that he's low class. Yeah, I got a quote. I got a quote from Wolf here that
0: is great. Wolfe described him as underbred, and she oh. called you. She called Ulysses the book of a self-taught working man. Um, and also the book of an, a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples. <laughs> oh. And it's funny that we put them in, in like the study of modernist literature. These are like two of the biggest names, at least two of the biggest European names that people kind of pair them up, it's right? It's, it's, it's salty. It's Joyce, Wolfe, Hemingway, Fitzgerald. and And then, you know. So do we others.
1: like... Uh, the free and direct James Joyce, or do we like the underbred James Joyce? <laughs> what do we like more for the show title? What do you think? I, I like, the
2: pimply, I like the pimply <laughs> James Joyce. pimply James Joyce. I'll pick. I'll pick yeah. like I always do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and one thing on this George Russell, he went to George Russell and pounded it on the door. And I, one thing, this is back in Ireland, even though kind of in our gradual moving forward, we're, we're in Trieste. Um, he got hooked up with Yeats. Um, George Russell introduced him to Yeats via letter, and they met. And James Joyce gave him some 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 poems. Now Yeats is like a a, a celebrity writer at this time. He's sort of the biggest deal in literary Ireland. Literary Ireland, um, and Joyce. <laughs> Being a bit younger, Joyce asks him at one point in this meeting, Joyce is, you know, arrogant as possible. And Yates is like slightly impressed by him, but also kind of like trying to figure out his deal. And James asks him, well, how old are you? And Yates tells him he's like 40 or something at that time. And James just kind of shakes his head. This is the legend anyway. James kind of shakes his head and says, yeah, unfortunately, you're too old for me to help you, you know?
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> what?
0: What? yeah i love it i love it <laughs> and th- it, despite that yates would help him multiple times throughout his life sort of like a, a letter here when it really needed to I be wonder a if recommendation a laugh. there and yeah i think yates yeah. did have a little bit of that like you got moxie kid i think there was a yeah, little yeah. bit of that for sure <laughs> um yeah so um let's do, oh okay so now they're 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 abroad um I was. I said I was gonna. I was gonna tell you what I think well, is the sort of darkest thing. But go ahead. They were. They were in Trieste, and
1: yeah. that is. If you have a map in your mind, you can think of Central Europe. You think of Austria. It's right down below Austria, yep. and it's at the top of sort of where Italy curves over. Over, yeah. You start getting into um what what is it if you went down it'd be sort of the balkans and everything correct yeah yeah yeah.
0: that's a that's a long way from that's a long way from dublin yeah and he kind of just ended up there because that's Hmm. where he had an opportunity and he ended up liking it partially i think he liked it because there was a little bit of he saw it a little bit like dublin in that it was in character italian but it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so it was a little bit of that Ireland-England thing going, right? Like the people there weren't really the people that were in charge of the of the place. So he had a little bit of that. Um, now, uh, flash forward a little bit. So, um, Giorgio, Nora, and James's son is born in uh, 1905. James is teaching at this Berlitz school, um, and all good, all all well and good. Now, the problem is. James is terrible with money for a number of reasons. He's a big tipper. Um, They eat out every night. Um, He always needs to have furniture. He's always buying books. He's always wanting to go to shows when he can. Um, And also he drinks a lot, right? Especially at this time, but actually all throughout his life. Um, So he has this, he, they have Giorgio, um, which I think is funny. He gives the kid basically an Italian name. Um, Giorgio would go by George when he when he was old enough to choose. Giorgio was born 19, July 27th, 1905. And uh, James realizes that this is a problem. He is not making enough money. He comes up with a bunch of schemes to try and make money. Um, one of them is importing Irish tweed Right? he's going to import some tweed jacket from Ireland and try and sell them. And apparently, he did do that a it few times. Sounds like a Joycean thing to do, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Right. He um he thinks about he might um try and uh, revisit his singing career, which we didn't talk about a little bit just for the sake of time. But he apparently had a beautiful tenor voice, um, um, and had been in some singing competitions and and had been in some concerts and things, and probably could have made a go of it as a professional singer at some level. Um. Um, So he thought maybe he would try to do that. He once submitted a, um, he solved a puzzle in a London magazine and sent the results in for a a 250-pound prize, which he apparently would have won, um, but it was delayed because of the post. Um, Now, for for reference, 250 pounds at that time is like 15 to 20 fifteen thousand to twenty thousand dollars like it's no joke right mm, yeah um, you know when you're hard up and you just had a kid like that's 20 20 grand is uh you is don't need to tell of me that brand
1: <laughs> <Right>. artofdarkpod.com
0: <laughs> slash support that's right that's right um so uh none of these schemes work to make money so james hits on another one he's gonna get his brother his younger brother stanislaw to come and move to Trieste, and they'll all share expenses. Right now, backing up a little bit, Stanislaus, Stanislaw, is the young, uh, the younger brother. He had always worshipped James, and like actually, a lot of the kids in the neighborhood back home kind of did. Clearly, he he was a wit. He was funny. He would dance, and he was a good singer. You know, so people generally liked him. Um, James had basically never shown any respect to his little brother Stan whatsoever. Um, Stan had tried to share some, some of his own writing with James and James had basically called him dumb, you know, like here's here, James, here's something that I wrote. Well, that's boring and dumb. Oh, <laughs> like ouch. That, that level of like, like, uh, 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 sort of just, just no compassion whatsoever. Um, and yet James decides he's going to reach out and say, Hey, little brother, why don't you come to Trieste? You know, this'll be great. You can get a teaching job here. I'll just hook you up with a teaching job and you can live with us and it'll be fantastic. Um, Stanislaus Stanislaus does it partially because he he loves his brother and he wants to be close to his brother partially because he feels a similar thing like James that you have to get out of Dublin if you're ever going to make something of yourself Um, all fine and good except that the day that he shows up in Trieste James borrows money from him Uh, and he basically wait so he
1: shows up and his brother borrows
0: money from him yeah yeah he shows up and he's like we uh stan we can't eat tonight
2: this sounds incredibly like a dubliner story this is absolutely (laughs) how a dubliner story would have ended yep (laughs) right yeah and
0: and and the thing is he never stopped borrowing money from him like until until world war one basically he is constantly b- borrowing money from Stanislaw. Stanislaw is paying off his debts. Um, James is drinking recklessly. Like he would stay out all night drinking, drinking up all their money, drinking up all Stan's money. It got to the point, and he's living in the same flat with Nora and Giorgio, right? It got to the point that um, Stanislaw would regularly, James would show up drunk in the middle of the night and Stan would beat him up. Like, you can't do this kind of thing. Like, what are you doing? You're ruining Like, in anger would, would pummel him um, to the point that like James would have to figure out schemes to like lure him out of the house and then sneak in so that he could like get to his bedroom without getting, getting <laughs> the, the pimply crap
1: pummeled out. underbred <laughs> free and direct James Joyce. <laughs> yeah. And, wait, wait, wait. So what, yeah. I, what I'm hearing, Brad, is that you're telling yeah. me that a groundbreaking writer, a yeah. genius yeah. has a slight bit of a drinking problem.
0: Yes, 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 he does. Yeah, mm. he um uh, and 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 this part is kind of sad though. I, I really felt for I really felt for the little brother who is who is a smart guy and a and a and a fairly talented writer. He wasn't joy. He wasn't James Joyce, but I mean, who is? Um, and he wrote his he wrote back to to their father after he'd been there for five years. He wrote back to their father, and you know, and said something along the lines of like. You know, I don't think James has asked me a single question about myself since I got here. Uh, Five years and just handing over money, handing over money, getting them out of jams, you know, paying the rent. That is such a terrible
1: personality trait. It really is. You meet someone and they don't ever bother to ask you. They don't, there's no tennis. The
0: the ball doesn't get handed over. That's awful. It's it's rough. And imagine if they did it for five years while you were paying their rent coming home drunk <laughs> sounds like love <laughs> yeah yeah for real so, sounds like some of the
1: twitter accounts that i follow oh I God! sort, <laughs> sort of imagine not not you uh uh aldis, not you. yeah and, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, aldis no not at all yeah, just for people to want to find you you're at forest of symbols on on uh, twitter, no it's actually right? it's actually at aldis asterian okay Yep. Yeah, okay, yeah. And, But the podcast, just to give you your plug here in the middle of it, oh, the yeah. podcast is Forest of Symbols. Where can people find that?
2: Yeah, you can look up the Forest of Symbols wherever we get podcasts. It's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, you can also, there is a Patreon. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash symbolpod. Um, I do uh, do some extra things on there. I've been reviewing some books or kind of giving a spiel on some books I've been uh reading lately. Uh I did a post on Finnegan's Wake recently. Uh oh yeah. Which I had time to do more on that. But uh but yeah, there is some extra stuff on there. So but I would say if you've never heard the Force of Symbols, listen to it first. And then if you like that, you know, think about going on the Patreon as well. Oh it's a very um
0: it's a very you're you're not an interview and you've had some great guests on. <laughs> by the way a couple <laughs> huh yeah, oh, yeah. Um, no yeah both kevin and i have been on that show but there's been some other great guests as well but uh your main show is is uh a very joycean effort and i don't mean in terms of dense and difficult to understand but in the uh the mm, i'm not even sure what the the sort of lateral connectivity of all things um so it's it's,
2: it's yeah really it's well funny done. i have yet to directly deal with joyce but i would say um he's an influence on on what i do
0: yeah yeah it definitely it comes it it definitely comes across that way for sure um so let me uh, there's so much there's so much Joyce stuff to talk about um i want to tell i gotta read you a little bit from a letter that Joyce wrote during this time in Trieste, still before he 's really published anything other than Irish homesteader stuff, okay so this is a letter he wrote to Aunt Josephine. He was always writing letters home to people um, and that was kind of a hobby, I guess that most people did at that time right that was that was their social media time um, um, he 's trying to get Uh, he's trying to get Dubliners published and he mentions this in, in this letter. Um, He's actually sent it off to a publisher who he would be in a wrestling match for publication rights and and printing problems and things for years. Um, But here he is talking about his, his sort of life uh, at this time. Um, Nora does not seem to make much difference between me and the rest of the men she has known. And I can hardly believe that she is justified in this. I'm not a very domestic animal, after all, I suppose I am an artist, and sometimes when I think of the free and happy life with uh, which I have, or had, every talent to live, I am in a fit of despair. At the same time, I do not wish to rival the atrocities of the average husband, and I shall wait till I see my way more clearly." I suppose you will shake your head now over my coldness of heart, which is probably only an unjust name for a certain perspicacity of temper or mind. I am not sure that the thousands of households which are with difficulty held together by memories of dead sentiments have much right to reproach me with inhumanity. To tell the truth, in spite of my apparent selfishness, I'm a little weary of making allowances for people. I I just think there's something so he feels stuck and people oh he's making allowances for people. Meanwhile, literally his brother is is paying his bills. Um, You know he's got a child. He's he's taken this woman um, from Ireland without marrying her he, he which doesn't seem like a big deal now but like yeah, it was to sure. convince her to it be okay that they weren't actually married you know there was a on, bit of a stigma to that in uh, <laughs> catholic dublin yes, in the uh, yes. turn of the century yeah. oh yeah when she would visit home later um, they did get married eventually because um, james was concerned that about being able to pass on his inher- inheritance to his children if they weren't married um but Later on, she would go home to to Ireland to visit family, and she would ask him if she could wear a ring just just for like appearance's sake. Like, I don't want to have the conversation, right? Can I just wear a ring? And he said, You cannot wear a ring. Like, I refuse to allow you to wear a ring. He was that much against like the idea of marriage. Um, which is can you imagine (laughs) that? Hardcore. He was, yeah. he was an
1: edgelord. He was an edge lord of Dublin. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Serious out. edgelord, especially as yeah. we, we get into Ulysses. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, for sure. For
0: sure. So, um, so one thing I wanted to say too, he's teaching in Trieste and, and I think he actually apparently was a pretty well-liked teacher. I mean, he was a character, right? And, and he was, he also had a lot of, um, a lot of talent for languages, um, there's some things that he would give, some, some things that have survived, which were translation lessons that he gave his students. Then a couple of them, I think, are funny and um, really kind of tell you something about his mind. Um, here's one of them. So he would give this to students, most of whom were adults. They were like businessmen or whatever who were trying to learn English. Um, <clears throat> this is one of them. That woman has a nice small breast, but her conscience is as wide as a sewer. Her husband is happy because her boyfriends are helping to develop her good points. I'm developing myself too. Go you and do likewise. Sop up 14 shots of absinthe on an empty stomach and you'll see. If this cure doesn't develop you, why, you're hopeless. You may as well give up trying to learn English according to this method. I don't know why he would tell him to translate. It seems bizarre, right? But it's like a whole <laughs> little joyce um, Here's another one. Ireland is a great country. It is called the Emerald Isle. The metropolitan government, after centuries of strangling it, has, la- has laid it waste. It's now an untilled field. The government sowed hunger, syphilis, superstition, and alcoholism there. Puritans, Jesuits, and bigots have sprung up. So that's a little bit of what he thinks about Ireland.
1: <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like a tweet storm.
0: It does. He's, yeah, he's, he's,
1: he's it had is. a few too many. He's going to let you know what he thinks about the <laughs> right. state of the nation.
0: Right, right. Uh, here's, here's another one. Dubliners, strictly speaking, this is the people, not the book. Dubliners, strictly speaking, are my fellow countrymen. But I don't care to speak of our dear, dirty Dublin as they do. Dubliners are the most hopeless, useless, and inconsistent race of charlatans I've ever come across on the island or the continent. This is why the English Parliament is full of the greatest windbags in the world.
1: uh, Do you think he's, he's giving them additional context, or do you
0: think that they're imbibing this as if it's god's truth not sure i mean mm. you know when i think it's important to remember that the vast majority of people who were te- was teaching were were adults because this is a language school this isn't like public school right sure, so sure. these are people who already have educations and things so there's probably a little bit of a wink and a nudge and a and a ha ha james you're so crazy sure, kind of sure. thing. I, right. I would imagine right. yeah but,
1: there is that sort of expatriate Style where you absolutely savage the place that you're from, right? right? right I've left right. this place. They're right. all backwards, and yeah. here we know better. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But those those are very funny too. I, I appreciate I, well, the sense a, of humor.
0: Yeah, he's 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 certainly a wit. Um, uh, so also in this time, he spends a lot of time in in Trieste trying to get Dubliners published, as we mentioned. Um, and it did not. It was surprising how poorly it went. Um he had this guy george uh, sorry grant richards who who was willing to publish it and and, in the process early on was kind of like okay this is great we'll publish it but can you make like a little tweak here this is a little bit offensive and that's kind of dirt we can't say you know and joyce at first would kind of like i don't want to say he just he just catered to it but every once in a while he would say yeah okay that's not maybe that big of a deal and then they start to accumulate you know it's like at one point somebody asks you to change one word and you're like, "Oh, that's fine." And then you get pushed an inch and they take a mile and it gets kind of worse and worse. At one point they send a story to the printer, Grant Richards does. And Grant Richards hadn't even read this one, and the printer pushed back and said, "I can't I can't publish this. This is the obscene. printer." Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he had yeah. he had all kinds of problems like this and Joyce would eventually start to get kind of litigious about it. But um the funny thing is like none of it is all that like, the stuff that's obscene to us, it, you would put it on family, like, family primetime television, the stuff that he... <laughs> like, I, I don't know, I'll just can you... Do you remember any of the things specifically? Like, what is the dirtiest thing that happens in, in, in
2: Dubliners? In Dubliners? Yeah. There's... There isn't much, really. Right. um Although there's some indirect stuff. Uh, like there's a story called An Encounter and mm. it's about these boys, young schoolboys, and they're skipping class for the day they decide to play hooky and they run into an old man in the park. And, you know, on a work day, an old man who's in the park is not going to be a very... Uh, That's true. You know, he's going to be some kind of nefarious character. And there's, mm. you know, he starts talking to them and he's a little bit weird and then he goes away. And then you hear one of the boys saying oh look what he's doing and then they all try to get away and they hmm. but they don't say, say what say. he's doing right. right right um so i yeah i don't, I don't know exactly what <laughs> yeah what yeah, uh, what, uh, yeah. And oh was, my god uh, oh that old
1: man is starting a podcast right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's disgusting just squatting in
1: the corner can't, can't have this is that a blue yeti ah <laughs>
2: <laughs> but there was another story called Ivy Day in the committee room that was fairly political. And I think that yeah. was a little bit sensitive as well. It had to do with the king's visit to Ireland um, and, and the issue of Parnell, too, who was uh, somewhat controversial. Right, controversial. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Joyce would actually eventually he got into such arguments about the Ivy Day story um, that he he would write a letter to the king of England basically asking, is this offensive? um or, or you know can i just can they publish this or are you offended by it and the king didn't write back. you know it was like the king <laughs> was sitting there waiting for a letter from james joyce but he was looking for ways to try and make this happen basically and it mm-hmm. took i mean it took years dubliners uh dubliners didn't come out until oh, i don't know if i've got that handy it was it was like 1912 when it came out well,
1: I don't want to put this censorship too far in the past either because right. you think forward to what was it it was it called the Hays code the the moral yeah. code that Hollywood had to sort of obey and the Catholic yeah. Church was heavily involved in that yeah. and then you think about I love Lucy and the twin beds and the right. whole we're not right. we're not that far away from that stuff and of course we have our new regime of censorship right, as which well. is so, different
0: different the nah. standards are different but just mm-hmm. as strict in some ways yeah yeah, yeah. 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 SSDD Right. Yeah. SSDD. What does that mean? Oh, you probably can't say. (laughs) Right. Can't say. (laughs) Um. Uh. So. Oh. So you know. One thing. Um. He he's trying to get. He becomes a little bit of a known quantity in Trieste just because he's he's he's, it's such an interesting character, and plus he's out drinking all night, right? So you know you start to make some friends that way, whether they're good or not. Um. He uh. And this is one more thing about Ireland. So he, to make a little bit of money, he gets a job for an Italian language newspaper to write stories about Ireland. And they're actually quite popular in Trieste. So this is part of, the, part of his becoming a kind of a local, I don't want to even say celebrity, but, but a local, local character that people know. Um, and there's a great quote he says. Um, this was actually after the articles, he was asked to deliver a lecture at, the, at a university there in Trieste. Um, and this is something he said about Ireland, just hitting on this, this thing we're talking about, his relationship to the country. <clears throat> the economic and intellectual conditions that prevail in Ireland do not permit the development of individuality. The soul of the country is weakened by centuries of useless struggle and broken treaties. and individual initiative is paralyzed by the influence and admonitions of the church, while its body is manacled by the police, the tax office, and the garrison. No one who has any self-respect stays in Ireland, but flees afar as though from a country that has undergone the visitation of an angered Jove. So this is important to think about in terms of his relationship to people who remained in Ireland, is he kind of, I don't think he actually respected you if you stayed in Mm. Ireland. There's Mm -hmm. a certain like, well, yeah, if you're dumb enough to stay there, like then that should happen to you a little Mm. bit. Um, So... Anyway, a little bit more of his headspace. I'm
1: trying to think of if there's anything in the United States that we could remotely compare Dublin to. When you think about London and the UK, and mm. Ireland is really on the far reaches of of Europe. It's, it is, yeah, right on the edge, and yeah. yeah, just an interesting thing. And that chip on his shoulder, and then of course, you know, the language is English mm-hmm. that he's writing, mm-hmm. and so there's mm-hmm. that kind of quality of being a bit of an outsider. I mean, I yeah. think, I think uh, yeah, you can yeah.
0: certainly understand, you can certainly understand the resentment. I think you can certainly understand the resentment of the English. Um, what's interesting is to turn that into the resentment on the Irish too. You know, that's sure. a kind of a, that's, 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 that's everybody a, I
1: mean, has enough
0: resentment to go around. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's not hard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so 1907, uh, their daughter, Lucia is born. I love that he gave them both Italian names. Um, They used to speak um, the Triestan dialect of Italian at home, actually. That was the first language that the the kids learned. Um, uh, Interestingly, he named her Lucia. Lucia is the patron saint of eyesight. Um, And for those who don't know, one sort of... You know, the image a person might have of Joyce, especially in his later life, is either with an eye patch or um, with very thick glasses or a combination of the two. He had uh, not only poor eyes in terms of eyesight, but unhealthy eyes in terms of like, he basically had, we'll get into this now, he basically had chronic conjunctivitis, uh, chronic pink eye, which... Um, if anybody knows anything about pink eyes, you don't get chronic pink eye. It doesn't really actually make any sense. Most likely, what was going on with Joyce is that he had syphilis um, and ah. had kept it had been kept um, under wraps. Now he may have had. The speculation is that he had congenital syphilis, so that he was he was born with syphilis. Um, but he also, you know, he spent a lot of time in brothels before he met Nora. So it's possible that he picked it up there, right? As one does. As one does. Yeah. So, um, and we'll maybe touch on this a little bit later. I mean, it's, his eye situation is actually, sounds terrible. Um, he has something like 12 or 15 surgeries over the years on his eyes, um, up to the point of them, like, cutting parts of his eyes out Um Ooh. Yeah, he okay. would go, yeah, he would have recover, he would have recoveries where he was actually blind for days or weeks at a time. Mm. Um, he had to look through a magnifying glass for, for, for stretches, like to read anything. Um, so this was an ongoing, this was an ongoing thing. And it started around the time or shortly after Lucia was born. Um, uh, let's see. So Lucia born, yada, yada, yada. Oh. We're gonna do. I want to do a little description. So he made a friend, um, and then we're gonna get into. I want to get into Ulysses soon, but I want to hit a couple things first. So um, just trying to give you guys even more the audience, even more of an image of of what Joyce was like to be around. He met he, one of his students that he became friends with was this guy named. I don't know how to pronounce this. Etor E T T O R E ator um, Schmitz. Um, who was like a well-to-do uh, manager of a company that sold like paint to the shipping industry or something, um, but actually jo- was a pretty talented writer. And Joyce actually respected him as a writer and would later on help him out. But in one of his lessons to Schmitz, Joyce said, write me in English a description of me. Describe your teacher. And So this is what this, is what, uh, this, is what this, this friend of his and, and writer wrote about Joyce. When I see Joyce walking on the streets, I always think that he is enjoying a leisure, a full leisure. Nobody is awaiting him, and he does not want to reach an aim or to meet anybody. No, he walks in order to be left to himself. He does also not walk for health. He walks because he is not stopped by anything. Imagine that if he would find his way barred by a high and big wall, he would not be shocked at the least. He would change direction, and if the new direction would also prove not to be clear, he would change it again and walk on his hands, shaken only by the natural movement of the whole body, his legs working without any effort to lengthen or to fasten his steps. No, his step is really his and of nobody else and cannot be lengthened or made faster. His whole body in quiet is that of a sportsman. Um, there's one other part. He wears glasses and really he uses them without interruption from the early morning until late in the night when he wakes up. Perhaps he may see less than it is to suppose from his appearances, but he looks like a being who moves in order to see. Surely he cannot fight and does not want to. He is going through life hoping not to meet bad men. I wish him heartily not to meet them. Uh, yeah, this seems like an interesting little little portrait. I'd like to imagine James like yeah. hustling through the streets. I don't know if you guys went to school um, with anybody. There's a certain kind of kid in like middle school who, between classes, because they're you know bullied or whatever, sort of ran to one class to another, sort of like hugged the wall and kind of like t- tucked in a little bit and sort of hustled from one class to another. I imagine Joyce is a little bit like that, but but sort of coming out of
2: it as time goes on yeah since yeah, I, can't I can't think, think of see. anybody that might have been me <laughs> it
0: might have been <laughs> me or, <laughs> I don't
2: <know>. yeah yeah <laughs> no, uh, but, uh, what i'm saying I'm is i like take a nerd.
0: quick
1: break i'm gonna go take a quick break here brad i'll you're be right take, back you're gonna take I'm a break kid, i'm just i'm oh. just kidding
0: <laughs> i just bashed you
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry bud <laughs>
0: <laughs> toughen <laughs> up yeah
1: toughen i'm up. a genius nobody <laughs> knows i do love that that vision of joyce is <laughs> like and these characters and it reminds me a bit of bit of Kubrick this idea that you know these these folks have these artists have these complete cathedrals in their minds Mm -hmm. of what they're going to do and what they they're going to accomplish but of course none of it translates to the normie on the street no. much less the family or anyone else yeah you can't
0: um, you can't explain that and there were a yeah. lot of things of joyce like reading parts of his work to people and then just being like yeah that's that's nice james that's really good <laughs> good job <laughs> well then there's there's that that that,
1: that worrisome thing for writers where it's like are you, am i just doing therapy when does right. this become something real am i right. mentally ill i'm talking right. to my right. it, it does have the quality of talking to yourself
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. For yeah, hours yeah. at length. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. No, it's definitely. It's and definitely then there's that like
1: horror that. when somebody hands you their stuff.
0: <laughs> and that, at the oh, same no.
1: anxiety because you know how, <laughs> you, but by and large people are, I have noticed by and large people are pretty good about, it's not, it, it's rarely as bad as that.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, thinking about what we want to hit here before. Okay. Well, I want to hit, I think we can get into talking about Ulysses in a moment, but I want to pair it with one of his last trips to Dublin in 1912. He's, he's finally, um, he's, he's finally starting to get some attention. Um, but very, very little so far. Dubliner's is somebody wants to publish Dubliners, but they keep pushing back. Portrait of an artist as a young man is kind of getting closer to being done in 1912. Um, but he goes back for a visit, um, partially, uh, at the prodding of of Nora he wants to take Giorgio there but so Nora and, and Lucia stay behind with Stanislaw and, and, and James goes back um, and he runs into a couple of people who um, he would think of as enemies one of them is Oliver Gogarty um, and for folks who have read Ulysses or are familiar with it um, it's it's Buck Mulligan is the name right Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I had so many names in my head. I wanted to make sure I'm not mi- mixing some of them up. So Oliver Gogarty is, is, is Buck Mulligan in the novel Ulysses. And Buck, uh, Oliver Gogarty is probably a pretty fun guy in a way. He's smart. He'd become a surgeon by this point, um, but was also a, a bit of a writer. Um, and he'd given Joyce a little bit of a hard time uh, on his way out. And we might talk more about that in Ulysses or maybe not. He's definitely in that book. Um. so uh, Oliver Gogarty kind of forces himself on Joyce when he shows back up and then there is another character named Cosgrave who Joyce runs into who's like an old friend right and for motivations that I don't fully understand Cosgrave tells Joyce when they meet in 1912 in Dublin he says you know James you know how when you and Nora were kind of you know courting you know how she would only come and see you every other night? That's because I was going out with her the other nights. All right, see you later. (laughs) And so this threw Joyce into into just madness. Like Noro also wasn't there. So he's like trying to write her letters and he's freaking out and he's losing his mind with jealousy. And he can't stand the fact that she would see him and his friend Cosgrave as you know, interchangeable, essentially, he he really kind of almost goes off the deep end. And it's surprising that the relationship even survived um, this sort of tirade of letters that he sent. Um, um, but yeah, so, so this is the kind of thing that would make him feel like uh, Joyce's betrayal is partially his sense of betrayal about Ireland is partially imagined and partially real, you know, this Cosgrave move, I don't know if Cosgrave's just trying to be a jerk. I don't know if he was jealous because apparently he had tried to date Nora, but I mean, who pulls something like that, you know, it's eight years later. Like, who, why, would you, why would you do that? It's very strange. Um, so these, these characters and others, and also I think revisiting Dublin in 1912, this really starts to get the wheels in motion on Ulysses, the great book ulysses so maybe we can start to kind of set the scene about what is this book and why why is it a big deal and why are we
2: talking about it 100 years later sure um Um, well um do you want me to give a kind of a plot synopsis as well as
0: i can Um, yeah let's do i mean yes i think that's probably good but then also anything about it you want to talk about i'm also i'm still trying to figure out i read Ulysses I'm still trying to
2: figure out what I read so
0: (laughs) yeah as
2: as am I you know I I, I think I mentioned this earlier but like the depths are just like it feels like it's infinite so in in preparation I was just like oh my god how am I gonna do this (laughs) eventually you just gotta you know you just gotta say what you what you think you know about this but uh, anyways the plot as I understand it Uh, it's about this man Leopold Bloom and a a day in his life uh, he is a middle-aged uh jewish advertising canvasser which i basically means that he sells ads for the newspaper door-to-door more or less and Mm -hmm. this is good because it gives him the opportunity to talk to a lot of people throughout the day um and he wanders through dublin the day the day in question is june 16th 1904 uh as you mentioned earlier and um interesting to note I didn't think about this when I I didn't learn this until recently and it makes makes the novel make more sense but that particular day was a half work day so it allows for a lot more things to be happening uh, because you think like you know there's not a lot of people working there's like a parade that happens Um, he goes to a funeral Um, he's eating and drinking in pubs Um, it is a very busy day it's a very busy day um (laughs) The whole time he is uh, trying to uh, not think about uh, his imminent cuckolding by a an Irish Chad by the name of Blazes Boylan. Uh, it's a great. This is a great name. <laughs> great Joycean name there, um, and yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that meant uh, you know that like casual dropping of infidelity because it's actually a pretty stro- uh, strong theme um, in Ulysses. Yeah. Uh, as Bloom is wandering, he. Uh, a couple of times almost runs into stephen dedalus who we met in is the hero of portrait of the artist as a young man and finally he does meet him um, toward the end of the day uh, in a maternity hospital where a uh, a mutual acquaintance is having a baby and um stephen is there because a a friend is like a an intern or or a doctor or someone there can't remember exactly but he, he. it's kind of odd. It's a maternity to hospital, but there's a bunch of young men there drinking. Hanging and, out. <laughs> it's, it's an Irish birth, I guess. You know, a bunch of people <laughs> drinking outside while the right. woman is in labor. Um, but, um, you know, this is symbolically important because uh, another background that's going on here is that um, since Patty Dignam's funeral, Bloom's been thinking about his son, Rudy, who died in infancy. And mm-hmm. Stephen, uh, recently back from... Paris, um, and you kind of gave the biographical background to that, what yeah. happened with Joyce, yeah. it's the same situation with Stephen. Uh, his mother was dying, he refused to kneel um, and pray for her and he does feel, even though, you know, his his, his principles wouldn't let him do it, he does feel guilty and he has been thinking about his dead mother. Um, when they do finally cry sounds
1: like he's got a little bit of chop yeah uh that's all right so
0: maybe you can pick up uh there a little bit brad Mm -hmm. sure yeah well um i think i can't really do the summary necessarily um and and, but we are
1: talking about a day in the life in dublin we were talking about how the irish are indolent and lazy (laughs) and they have a have we have a half day, of course. Yeah. I'm joking. Yeah. I love them. my Irish brothers and sisters, my cousins in the old country, uh, but that is so interesting. And then, of course, his Jewishness too is very is very yeah not, yeah um, Joyce yeah Aldus are you Aldis, are you back? You had a little bit of a choppy connection there. Yeah yeah. Can you hear me okay. now? Yes. Yeah, we can hear yeah. you. You're good. Okay, that's
2: great. Yeah, um, yeah it is important that um, that Bloom is Jewish because you know anti-Semitism to Joyce was like a mark of a provincial you know mm-hmm. low-class person and it's 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 another one of these things that he judges the irish for yeah um yeah and, there was he saw that he actually saw sort of
0: a, a a spiritual kinship between the irish and the and the Jew, and jewish folk i think in terms of like a constantly kicked around by history kind of thing in part
2: yeah, he did. There is yeah. that as
0: well. Um, yeah. But I think there was something like, "I'm just going to put a Jew in your city, and you have to deal with it." <laughs> the little, right?
2: I, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, well, you know, there's like a there's a lot going on. There's a lot to say about that. Like the theme of exile is pretty interesting to Joyce. He thought of himself as an exile. Um, his the one play that he wrote is called Exiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. Um, Anyway, I guess I, some of my plot summary got, uh, got cut off there, but they do finally, Stephen and Bloom finally meet, you know, Bloom follows Stephen uh, because he sees how drunk he is uh, into a brothel, um, you know, with the attempt to sort of look out for him. And then you get this long hallucinatory uh, chapter um, where they meet their greatest fears and desires. They've, make it out of there and um bloom you know takes him back to his home makes him hot cocoa they have a conversation they urinate together in the yard which is the ultimate symbol of male bonding right? it really, it really um, is <laughs> then bloom goes to sleep next to his wife Molly and the book ends on a long uh, interior monologue from Molly and, and and that's Ulysses yeah that's more t- or less I mean a lot right. there's a lot of other things that happen in there and there's you know, dozens and dozens of minor characters, but that's that's the plot. That's the book in a nutshell. Yeah,
0: the characters piled up on top of each other is kind of fascinating. And then you find out in reading the I, the Elman biography, basically everybody in there is either directly inspired by an actual person or is like some combination of two or three people. I mean, even the prostitutes in the brothel were based on real prostitutes. <laughs> Oh. Like, <laughs> like down to everybody. Everybody that appears in the book, you can figure out who they are who
2: they are. Yeah. Joyce they're, definitely has research for the for the <laughs> say, <laughs> this a, is a
1: write-off. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> right, right. I'm doing
0: research. Yeah. Yeah. So so that part is that, that part's really, really f- the, the intense the, the intense relationship that he had to to sort of the truth. And then the book that he produces, which is not that it's not true, but that it's so stylistically insane, really. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, this is the...
2: So, you know, that's the plot. But, you know, the the, the point of Ulysses and the reason it was such a groundbreaking book is that each chapter uh, opens up a completely new way to write a novel in a way. Mm -hmm. The perspective shifts, the style shifts, and there's some sort of conceit that is sort of brought forth and he's changing what he's, he's, you know, changing what he's doing with each um, chapter and the, the, what he did with technique. I mean, all of your like, you know, doorstop novelists that came after him duo something to Ulysses. I mean, Thomas Pynchon, Mm -hmm. John Barth, he's definitely, Joyce is definitely a big influence on all those guys. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about that. I mean, the,
0: Gravity's Rainbow is Gravity's Rainbow is a very Ulyssian. I don't know if that's the word. Very <laughs> Ulysses influenced work for sure. Um, this even in the way it feels at, at times. Yeah, just the, is how things happen and how one thing leads to another, and um, and 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 also st- also style. So yeah, it's a big. It's a big it's one of those things where it's sort of like you see these, these nominations for, there was recently another uh, podcast uh, beyond the zero, which I think started out as a, as a Thomas Pynchon sort of podcast and has kind of grown beyond that, where they just had like a world series of books and, <laughs> and they would take a poll on each of them. And Ulysses, I think, I don't know if it won, but it came out near the top. And it's very interesting to me to see how vital it remains. Um and at the time, you know, he was writing it. He's he's living in he's living in Trieste. He's got a couple of books that he can't seem to get anybody to pick up, um, and and you know, the fact that he, the fact that he like lived up to his genius with that book a little bit seems seems significant to me. Um, and it is a thing you read if you flip to a page and you read it. It's clearly something. You know, it's there's clearly a gravity to it um you know, precision to it um and that's kind of one thing that i always sort of see in joyce is like it's the most carefully laid chaos i can imagine in, in and yes right
2: <laughs> yeah it, 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 it's there's so much going on and it's it, but it's very intricately planned and like mm-hmm. the the all the different techniques that he rolls out like yes on one level there's no question about it because you you've kind of talked about uh, the egotism of joyce yeah there's definitely a an element of him showing off like he's he's going to show you what you know what he can do um but the i think the techniques they're generally um where the form fits the content he he really takes care to do that like you know just a, a few examples you know the the um, episode early on that's set in a newspaper office is laid out with um, sections that have titles, right? Uh, headlines. Newspaper. And, and yeah. a lot of them are kind of ironic and, and kind of funny too. Um, he has, uh, well, the episode I mentioned in the uh, maternity hospital is probably the most virtuoso performance because what he does in that sh- uh, episode is he imitates the style of the, uh, some, something like 18 or 20 different writers throughout the history of the English language oh. and essentially recapitulates the development of English literature. Wow. Uh, I read Anthony Burgess's book on Joyce recently. He had a great comment on that chapter, which is uh, he that Joyce in that chapter envisioned the history of literature as a series of concentric circles with himself as the outer ring, enclosing <laughs> all of it. Right, right. <laughs> Wow. Wow.
0: Yeah, and so there, there is something interesting about doing that. So you, well, there's many, many things that are interesting about doing that. To, to do this, this this intense formal exploration and experiment, but then the setting of it is this very conventional, a little bit grungy, you know, it's just in a materna- maternity ward with some dudes drinking. Right. Like he doesn't, yeah. it, it, it's the, the subject matter and the events are always so unpretentious. All, all of this sort of great high minded art, as it were, is happening in the sentences, but not in the subject, which, I, which I've always found really compelling. It's, it's kind of like a, a high contrast project, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right.
1: We're going to make epic a single day in the life of one Jewish fellow in right. an Irish city I'm, I'm looking at the wikipedia right now and i have in front of me a picture of nichols lombard street established 1814 <laughs> excellence in funeral care and then underneath <laughs> it says something like as i passed nichols the undertaker uh, undertakers ulysses james joyce whatever so they right, they have right. on
2: their sign the fact that they were they were part of it ulysses i, I yeah, want to yeah. go to dublin so much just because they <laughs> all the establishments have that on there it's like and it's a weird thing like, like you mentioned it's it's an epic but it's like an epic of the everyday and we mm-hmm. haven't even mentioned the odyssey correspondence right, right we'll get into that but like yeah you know the, the ulysses tour is like oh i want to go see where uh B- leo bloom ate his gorgonzola sandwich you know <laughs> like <laughs> Right, right, right. It's
0: not where some epic battle was fought, or some like, yeah, yeah. It is literally
2: that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do love that.
2: <laughs> and so, you know, the the reason it's called Ulysses. I mean, this may be the one thing that people who haven't read Ulysses like know about it, which is that mm-hmm. it's it's paralleled to Homer's Odyssey. So there's a question of is he like shrinking down the epic? to the level of an ordinary day, or is he like blowing, expanding the ordinary day to something epic? And it's like, it's really both. Um mm-hmm. and um you know what ha- so there's 18 episodes in the book and each of them uh has a par- a correspondence with an uh something that happens or some element in the Odyssey. Um, so you know uh, the, 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 main characters of the book, uh, Bloom is obviously Odysseus. He is the wanderer, um, who eventually comes home in the end. Stephen Daedalus is, uh, Telemachus, uh, Odysseus's son who, uh, so the first three chapters of Ulysses, um, are all about Stephen. We don't even meet Bloom until chapter four. And then, uh, Molly Bloom is Penelope, the, uh, the woman who is thwarting the suitors um, by weaving and unweaving this uh, tapestry. Although you can, this is an example of where it's not an exact thing because Joyce is actually reversing certain elements because Molly is, or uh, uh, Penelope is not faithful in this iteration of Ulysses. Um, And she's also not just uh, Penelope either. She is actually also Calypso who is the you know uh, the the one who the sorceress who uh, Odysseus is under the sway of and entrapped by in the beginning of the Odyssey? Right, right, yeah. It he he he's kind of remarkably faithful
0: in a Joycean way. To it's it's not like um, what, what is, there's also uh, oh brother, where art thou? Is is another mm-hmm. thing that stands out in my mind is something that was not just sort of borrowing elements, but was like we're going to actually structure this thing like fairly strictly to to the Odyssey. Well, and the
1: and the Cohens are clearly influenced by Joyce. I think. That's I think that's
0: yeah. I think that's probably well. True. But who yeah. isn't right uh, on some <laughs> level, uh, right? Yeah. Right. Interesting. Right. right. Um, well, in the talking about this, like, is he shrinking it down? Is he doing what? I think part of it, you know. You've got to take. We've got to take into account what Joyce's vision of reality was. Um. You know. You've got this guy who's a an apostate from the Catholic Church, who you know, but weirdly thought that the Pope wasn't Christian enough. Um. Was when he Joy, part of Joyce's thing? I think from reading the Element anyway was was when he began to understand the metaphorical quality of Christianity, then he could accept it. But he had to see it as a work of art that sort of pierced through the levels of reality rather than like a story that strictly happened in this way. Um, and I think he kind of saw everything that way. I think I was trying to find this passage in the, in the element. I don't know if I took a note of it where it describes um, Joyce. Joyce is his idea that an artist was the person who could see the patterns of reality itself. And he thought that everything was, there was only a limited number of things that could happen. And so I think partially like taking the odyssey and putting it in the one day of like a common uh, Irishman is his one thing he's doing is he's saying like a little bit of as above, so below, right? Like, like, this this is the pattern of reality and you can see it
2: everywhere. So one way that he does this in Ulysses, because the Odyssey is only one layer of correspondence, right? So it's a very prominent one, but, you know, each chapter, and you can look up charts of this, um, and I don't know how important it is to do on a first reading, but, you know, once you have, then you can kind of dive into some of the other levels. Um, The episodes also have corresponding arts, and sciences. Each uh, chapter has a dominant color, right. an organ or part of the body and so on. And it's it's really weird. Like, I, I think Joyce, like there was a lot of occultism going on in Ireland at the yeah. time with like the yeah. Celtic Twilight. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, these like secret societies were part of the national um, revival uh, and myths and the exploration of all this stuff. And Joyce kind of like took a little bit of a, a dim view of that. And he sort of parodies um, these guys in uh, the Scylla and Charybdis chapter. Um, but that being said, it, the way Ulysses is put together really is reminiscent of something like tarot, which you know, Brad, I know you you'd probably have a lot to say about that yeah. because it, it's built out of a, a body of correspondences. It, it certainly yeah, it seems it seems to be that way. And he's
0: structured it. He's 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 structured it at all of these different levels, like like you've said, to um to sort of i wonder how much oh well, I, I kinda know. I, I don't think I think he understood that most people who picked up the book were not going to pick up on maybe any of this. They would see the Odyssey section. Some of it might be sort of implicitly kind of felt but not you're not able to really articulate it I think he was writing in I don't want to say he was writing in code because that suggests there's like some secret message in there but I think he was intentionally setting up a little bit of a labyrinth if you were willing to follow him down into it if that makes sense. I mean, he oh, said absolutely. something, he said something about like, well, why did you write it so, so complicated? So I give the critics something to do for, you know, 300 years. You know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I packed <laughs> it full of puzzles and enigmas and so yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is, is, is fascinating and, and the, suggests a certain kind of, a certain kind of mind. Um, uh, I want to I, I did find this bit about, um, uh, Joyce's version of reality that I think is, is, is interesting and it plays into Ulysses. Um, this is from the Elman biography. Joyce's fictional method does not presume that the artist has any supernatural power, but that he is an insight into the methods and motivations of the universe. Samuel Beckett has remarked that to Joyce, reality was a paradigm, an illustration of a possibly unstatable rule. Yet perhaps the rule can be surmised. It is not a perception of order or of love, more humble than either of these, it is the perception of coincidence. According to this rule, reality, no matter how much we may try to manipulate it, can only assume certain forms. The roulette wheel brings up the same numbers again and again. Everyone and everything shift about in a continual movement, yet movement limited in its possibilities. Um, And this whole sense of coincidences became and i think this is where the appeal of the occult stuff would be for him even if he even if he thought it was a little bit theatrical or didn't totally buy into it i think this is where the appeal would be he would become very superstitious over time like i think there's something he said i believe in all of the superstitions <laughs> so and i think he thought that they were some they were some a superstition, was somewhere where you'd kind of scratched the surface of reality to understand the pattern that went through everything, or something like that. Um, he was also he had weird things that he was, a, well, not weird, but he was terrified of lightning and thunder. He was terrified yeah. of dogs. Um, he was fascinated with dates of things, like anybody who was born on his birthday, that was a big deal, um, or, or any kinds of correspondences like that. He was constantly. Constantly seeing them to the point of almost like making them up, you know what I mean. Like if you look hard enough, you can find coincidence anywhere, anywhere you look. But he was definitely that sort of guy.
2: Yeah, he's yeah. and so the you know Ulysses is is set on this particular date that seemed to have like a mystical significance to him, June sixteenth, nineteen o four. It's like the first. It was the first date with Nora. I think you mm-hmm. did mention that, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it's reminiscent of Dante. Dante did that too. He he, he the t- when he. Uh, met Beatrice, you know, that like set that was fateful for his whole literary career Hmm. and not even met Beatrice. I think it was just that he saw her Hmm. um, and he associated her with the number nine and that like wound up structuring all of the divine comedy. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, and and Joyce certainly was uh, Dante was on his Mount Rushmore um, um, among a few other people. Uh, Ibsen, um, D'Annunzio and uh, I'm trying to think of the other writer that he was. He was, he, you know, he had some other folks that he he quite liked. But uh, you know, he, Joyce made the grand claim that that uh, Ibsen was better than Shakespeare. <laughs> Which wow. I, I don't know if anybody, I don't know if anybody agrees with that.
1: That <laughs> <laughs> might be a little bit of Irish bias. There might be a little bit of a jab yeah, there. A yeah. People right. really admire Ibsen though.
0: Oh yeah. No. And that's no downplay of Ibsen, but, mm-hmm. but, but yeah. to be, to be somebody and said, no, I think Ibsen's better is, is pretty. Again, pretty the bad. edgelord. He's the
1: guy yeah. who's like, ah, the or, Beatles, they're over. Right. Green, green, yeah. Red. Or it's yeah.
2: anxiety of influence. I mean, there's a lot of Shakespeare in Ulysses yeah a lot yeah. of shakespeare like yeah. there's almost as much shakespeare reference as there is homer reference so right right yeah.
0: right. yeah i don't think he could escape it well and then also um ulysses would be well we'll get we'll get to that we'll get to that so um i want to get us back a little bit biographical just so i can i can uh i can keep track of things in my own brain um so the, the the question might arise is like, okay, so you've got this book, you've written a couple of things. You're, James Joyce has written a couple of things that didn't really get any traction. He kind of can't get them printed or whatever. And then, you know, he becomes ultimately like this enormously influential writer. How does this happen? Right. How do you get from one to the next? And the fact of the matter is it's all about Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound, who people may know is, um, uh, he was you know i guess he's a well-known modernist writer but he's really even more than a writer he's a sort of the the um he he reminds me of somebody who like organized everything at at like in a school he had like he would find people and they would become pet projects ts Eliot was one of them and james joyce was another but there were there were there were additional people beyond that and he would sort of push them on everybody
2: So Ezra Pound, he was future Art of Darkness uh, subject, perhaps. Oh, yeah, we definitely want to do
0: Ezra Pound. Plus, he was he kind of lost his mind a little bit in the end. And he was he was an interesting, interesting guy And, and a real talent, too. Um, I don't mean to dismiss him as uh, his talent, but I think... We're his... going to
1: Pound Town.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <We're going> to... <laughs> yeah.
1: We'll At definitely... some point, probably yeah, next we'll... year. We yeah. have so many good episodes lined up for 2022. Yeah, it is going to be gonna dynamite. Gonna be We're going to play yeah. all the hits.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, so, e- Ezra Pound had heard about Joyce through Yates, and Yates, again, like, always helping Joyce out. I think just because he was another Irishman and he did really think he was, he was talented. Um, Pound reaches out to Joyce. Joyce, delighted to be finally recognized and, you know, and thought of, um, excitedly starts sending him stuff. He sends him stories of Dubliners, which still hasn't been published at this time, um, and, start, and and finishes up portrait of a nurse's young man and sends those off to, off to um, Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound is as enthusiastic as he'd hoped he'd be, and starts to get the wheels turning on publishing some of this stuff in in um, in literary magazines in America. And this kind of this wheels this wheel starts to kind of turn um, in 1912. Um, so now you're getting very shortly after you're going to get um, Dubliner short stories published in America. You're going to get um, parts of Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man published in America, um, and then Joyce is going to get the sort of uh, the recognition maybe he f- he feels he needs to really get going on Ulysses. Um, um, now we'll get to there was there were some there were some sort of legal. Um, difficulties in publishing a bunch of his stuff, but I think we're going to end up talking about the Ulysses one because I think that's the most interesting from a legal standpoint. There's a good story about uh, a trial in, in Greenwich Village in, in, or in New York City with a bunch of Greenwich villagers there anxiously waiting to see if Ulysses is going to be allowed to publish. So we're going to talk about that. But um, I think it's important, talking about a modernist writer, there is one event that you can't leave out of the life of any modernist writer, and that's World War I. Um, Joyce, again, is in Trieste, Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's full of Italians, obviously, even if you don't know anything about World War I history, it's like something weird. something's gonna be going on around those parts, right? Um, Joyce ends up having to leave Trieste trieste during world war one he started to write um uh ulysses um his family's basically no longer safe there um sadly stanislaw who's, who still lives there's younger brother lives there and is paying all his debts and all of this stanislaw had come out as very ardently ardent and vocal in support of the italians and so he gets thrown in prison for the duration of world world war one um oh. Yeah. James uh, is sort Central of. U- Central European prison in the, at the turn yeah. of the century, roughly. Yeah. 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 yeah Great. Yeah. 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 Um, and James just is sort of like, well, we got to Zurich, so good luck, man. Oh. <laughs> so wait, he's in, in an
1: Italian prison like in 1910,
0: 1912,
1: whatever? Uh, 1914, I guess it would oh,
0: actually be. Yeah. 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 So, wow. um, so not good. Um, and he's there for the duration of the war. Um for, for supporting the Italians yeah apparently yeah uh, I didn't get a ton of detail about that but but and I don't know exactly what the conflict was but but you know Austro-Hungarian Empire was was one of and, the and James is like
1: I'm out
0: <laughs> right yep I'm, <laughs> out. I'm going to Zurich <laughs> Say, oh man minute. thanks for taking care of literally everything um Oof. <laughs> so yeah so he finds his way so J- the Joyce's find their way to Zurich um and um it's interesting. It's funny. As soon as Stan's law is, is locked up, stuff starts happening for James that he doesn't need the money anymore. Um, he gets, uh, through the, um, efforts of Yates, he gets, um, some money from it's the Royal Literary Fund or something like that from from the, you know, from, from his uh, home country basically. Um, he also ends up starting to get some patronage from people. People are just sending him money on a regular basis because of his, they, they support the work that has started to trickle out from Portrait and from Dubliners. Um, so yeah, he finds himself in this position in Zurich where he's like, it's all kind of starting to happen. Um, and yeah. Yeah. yeah go ahead. What what has been
1: published at this point? At this point,
0: um, multiple parts of Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, and um, uh, multiple stories from Dubliners, and okay. I, I think when he'd hit Zurich, it's I don't remember exactly the timeline, but either in Zurich or shortly after moving, either before he got to Zurich or shortly after getting there, they published um, a section of Ulysses. Got um, it. So this is the thing is the idea is it's like, man, he had these great expanses between publishing these books. The fact is he's publishing sections of them all throughout. It's it's Uh it's serialized, not quite in the sense of like it came out every week, like a Charles Dickens thing. But like, you know, by the time Ulysses hit hit the shelves in a full bound copy, a lot of the most interested parties had read. A great deal of it already so he's the hot young thing of
1: irish letters he's up yeah. and coming enough so that people want to th- chuck him a buck to support
0: him it's right right it's starting to happen right And All right. one of his one of his big um supporters is is uh harriet shaw weaver who ran a magazine called the egoist and was sort of independently wealthy as well she she had published um she had published most of Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, was ultimately going to try and publish the entire thing as a book, even though they weren't really set up as a, as a book publisher. Um, that caused, that was a little bit difficult. They ended up having to p- pass it over to another, another pub- publisher. But interestingly, 1916, both Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man and Dubliners get their first full volume publication in the same month. So Okay. He's right. been working for you know years and years and years in just little here and there victories, and finally two books come out in the same month, which I think bam is, bam yeah, yeah, which I think Joyce would that, also appreciate the coincidence of. Sure, yeah. that's often how it happens, though. You right, toil
1: right. in obscurity, and then suddenly, <laughs> you know. yeah,
0: yeah. What? Wait, what happens if you keep toiling in obscurity? <laughs> you, yeah, if you
1: keep toiling in obscurity, eventually, sometimes, occasionally, something will happen. Oh, possibly, oh, okay. maybe, right. yeah. <laughs> don't give up. Don't give up out there in podcast land. We're all gonna make it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, the cool thing about Zurich, and I didn't know this, but it totally makes sense. During Zurich and World War One, Zurich is in Switzerland, for you know, everybody knows that, but Switzerland is essentially neutral territory. So all the eccentrics, I don't want to say all, many of the eccentrics and bohemians and artists of that era found their way to Zurich. So suddenly, overnight, Zurich is like the European capital of culture and art for a while. And Joyce is like right there in the thick of it. He's making, he's making friends left and right. He, um, he goes to this cafe all the time that Lenin also went to all the time. And apparently, they most it's not fully documented, but it's believed that they met at least once there. Um, I am the
1: walrus. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not John Lennon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. We're not going to go into the, yeah. I have been to Zurich. Zurich is a beautiful, oh, really? uh, beautiful town. T- oh, yeah. Switzerland is a beautiful country. It. Zurich is a beautiful town. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. yeah. So Dada yeah.
2: comes out of there, right? Mm, I think so. Yeah. That, it mm-hmm. could. That could be. And then yeah. I think
1: uh, Herman, Herman Hess as well. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you know the thing is joyce you have to think joyce was probably pretty cool like he wasn't cool probably to be married to or um to be the brother of who's like you know you're paying all of his debts but i think if he was a dude that you met in the bar he must have been a lot of fun he he loved to sing he you know chat he 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 was a chatterbox um you know, he paid for a lot of people's drinks. I mean, that was part of the reason Stanislaw had to had to cover his debts a lot of the times. He did this thing, he would frequently, his his daughter-in-law, Helen, would say that when he drank, liquor it didn't go to his head, it went to his feet. He would do this thing that his friends described as the spider dance, which unfortunately is not survived into a YouTube video, but I have to imagine is some kind of like flailing, like, you know, he's a tall, skinny guy, and I just imagine him getting very like, um, you know, this dancing and singing.
1: Yeah. I, I, I choose to, to think of James Joyce dancing like uh, Elaine and Seinfeld.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is the choice that I'm making right now.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so Zurich, Zurich actually serves him pretty well and he stays there for quite a long time. Um, another thing he starts to get, um, he starts to meet some people who are, um, disciples of either Freud or Jung and again he didn't believe in this quote unquote psycho and psychoanalyst nonsense in fact one of his patrons um, who was just sending him money every month um, told him that he had to, to keep getting the stipend he had to go to Jung for psychoanalysis and he said I- I'm not doing that that's not yeah happening.
1: that that stuff has always been a cult yeah. it's a cult <laughs> a it, is. Yeah. it is yeah it yeah. is big time yeah. oh yeah big yeah. time or, yeah. or cult adjacent i don't oh, doubt sure. that it's helped a lot of people but there is a cultic quality to it uh and yeah. we're gonna do both of those guys oh yeah we're gonna do yeah Freud. there's a, there's we're a
0: gonna
1: fun do... <laughs>
2: Young. there's a fun little dig at those guys in finnegan's wake um he says um Uh, they were young and easily Freud and as a, as a pun that he makes in (laughs) Finnegan's wake that I like. That's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's there. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll we'll get to talking about them. Now, one thing I would do want to maybe put as a little teaser out there that we're going to draw ourselves to, because this is towards the end of the Joyce story. Joyce's daughter is um, treated by Carl Jung a few years, uh, several years down the road from from this point that we're at now. Um, so, in Zurich, uh, bits of Ulysses start to come out. Um, now, they get um, they start getting published in America and in, in American journals, but they actually get or, or sent over and they get confiscated and destroyed and there ends up over time being a trial about whether this work is obscene or not. And I want to read you a bit of it because actually part of it's kind of funny, this whole this whole trial thing. Um, he had Joyce had all of these people who were helping him. Um, not only Ezra Pound, but in Harriet Weaver, but a number of other, uh, another of other publishers and socialites and, and people who had become uh, convinced of his brilliance. Um, so it's not like Joyce went over to the United States to defend him, it was various publishers and things. Um, so it's on trial in New York. It's a courtroom full of Greenwich villagers and you know, artistic types and things like that, various editors and publishers and things like that. Um, And I just think that this is funny. So, this is from the Elman biography describing the trial. It was now time to read the obscene passages carefully called by Sumner. One judge urged that they not be read in the presence of Miss Anderson. You know, she's a lady, but she is the publisher, said John Quinn, who was defending the book. So, the judge didn't want the book to be read in front of the woman who had published the book because he didn't want to offend her sensibilities, right? when the passages were read, two of the judges found them incomprehensible. Uh, Quinn was glad to agree. Quinn is uh, defending the book. Quinn was glad to agree, since if they could not be understood, they could not corrupt, but rather la- uh, lamely attributed the difficulty to the lack of punctuation, which, lamely again, he attributed to the failure of Joyce's eyesight. It was decided to adjourn the trial for a week to give the judges time to read the whole Nausicaa e- episode. Okay, so moving down here a little bit. Um, uh sorry there is proof uh there is my best exhibit oh okay this is quinn defending it again there is my best exhibit there is proof that ulysses ulysses does not corrupt or fill people full of uh, lascivious thoughts look at him he is mad all over he wants to hit somebody he doesn't want to love anybody so the, part of the argument was they, the the lawyer the the legal system was saying it's obscene. And the whole idea, if it's obscene, it's going to get people it's going to get people horned up, basically. You don't want to do that, <laughs> but
1: they can't understand it. So how are they, they going to get, get all it. horned up? Right. Yeah. And
0: mm. one of the other defenses was that, like, listen, it's not seductive, it's repulsive. Like, yes, there is like, you know, there's like a masturbation scene in there or whatever, but it's not sexy. It's <laughs> it's it's gross was kind of part of the, the tenor of their argument. Right. Um, how much uh,
1: anti-Irish bias was involved in this? That's a was good question. Now, none, none of it nah. comes up
0: in the biography, but I think mm. it was probably there. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So, so eventually, the judge says, um, the judge says, uh, da, 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 da. he says, "Okay, it's fine. It was understood the publication of Ulysses would be discontinued." Um, Quinn had to certify that the Nautica episode was the worst in the book to save his clients from being sent to prison. So actually, this is an earlier trial where it didn't get fully, um, they actually did have to pay a fine or something. The judge said, and now for God's sakes, this is to Margaret Anderson, the woman he he didn't want to, to read the story in front of. He says, and now for God's sake, don't publish any more obscene literature. And she said, how am I to know when it's obscene? The judge replied, I'm not sure. I don't I'm sure I don't know but don't do it so they couldn't even <laughs> understand what was obscene about it exactly except that it I was know it when I see obscene. it scene yeah right it was definitely when that so this is the kind of thing that Joyce's publication was up against and eventually he would he would win as, as as social as you know social the social milieu changes over time um but yeah this is this is the the kind of funny thing that he's he's set himself up against
1: well didn't didn't some very heavy people came to his defense though right this yeah was over the time vanguard
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah it, over time it was like the entire artistic establishment was on his side so it would kind of it seemed kind of ridiculous to 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 fight back against it but it, it took time um and you know it, it it does have things that go against the sensibilities of those of that time for sure um 1920 um sorry 1920 um now this is the war is over so we're kind of skipping past past the war a little bit joyce just hid out in zurich so it's not as big a deal from for him as it was for a lot of other people though he did have people that he um, went to school with for instance who who, who got caught up in it and, and died um and and he certainly wasn't um He and his family, Nora and Giorgio and Lucia, they weren't affected by it, but they certainly knew people who were. And they'd been displaced, um, you know, even though they got to a place that was pretty good for them. Um, They moved back to Trieste for a while though there's no money there's no he can't work at the school it's the social dynamics have changed entirely so he can't really figure out what to do Stanislaw's let out let out of prison and their relationship is never the same cuz you know Stanislaw is not just going to go back to paying him you know handing forking money over to him um so in 1920 Joyce goes to meet uh, Ezra Pound in Paris he's going to stay for a week and he ends up basically staying for more or less the next 20 years um and uh also by this time his legend has started to grow i mean he's been part of a court case in new york right and people have start are starting to be able to read his stuff he becomes he becomes kind of a, a legend before ulysses is even published i want to read you this this, this thing from the elmen um and then hopefully then we i think we can get into talking about maybe we can get into talking about finnegan's wake a little bit um so this is uh, Joyce writing to Weaver, who was um, his primary supporter. She was giving him, I can't remember what it was, it was some number of pounds per month as like a stipend. Uh, Dear Miss Weaver, <clears throat> a nice collection could be made of legends about me. Here are some. My family in Dublin believe that I have enriched myself in Switzerland during the war by esp- espionage work for one or both combatants. Triestians, seeing me emerge from my relative's house occupied by my furniture for about 20 minutes every day and walk to the same points, the GPO and back, circulated the rumor, now firmly believed, that I am a cocaine victim. The general rumor in Dublin was, till the prospectus of Ulysses stopped it, that I could write no more, had broken down, and was dying in New York. A man from Liverpool told me he had heard that I was the owner of several cinema theaters all over Switzerland. He, he actually had um, tried to start a theater in Dublin. Uh, In America, there appear to be or have been two versions, one that I was an austere mixture of the Dalai Lama and Sir Rabindranath Tagore. Mr. Pound described me as a dour Aberdeen minister. Mr. Lewis told me he was told that I was a crazy fellow who always carried four watches and rarely spoke except to ask my neighbor what o'clock it was. Mr. Yates seemed to have described me to Mr. Pound as a kind of dick swiveler. I have no idea what that means. What the numerous and useless people to whom I have been introduced here think i don 't know my habit of addressing people I have just met for the first time is Monsieur and earned for me the reputation of a tout petit bourgeois while others consider that I intend for politeness as most offen- uh, while others consider what I intend for politeness as most offensive. One woman here originated the rumor that I am extremely lazy and will never finish do or finish anything. I calculate that I must have spent nearly 20,000 hours writing in Ulysses. A batch of people in Zurich persuaded themselves that I was gradually going mad and actually endeavored to induce me to enter a sanatorium where a certain Dr. Jung, the Su- Swiss Tweedledee who is not to be confused with the Viennese Tweedledee, Dr. Freud, <laughs> amuses himself at the expense of ladies and gentlemen who are troubled with bees in their bonnets. <laughs> so anyway that's a kind of extended Whoa. passage but like this is joyce is now like a a thing in the world right there's yeah. people who know of him in america but nobody really kind of knows what his deal is um you know part of that is the time you know there you know have the internet you can't watch a youtube video of him or whatever but part of it is there is a little bit of a mystique to this guy this ulysses Some buzz book is, yeah. yeah what is this yeah. book
1: about right yeah. a dick swiveler uh, okay. is a fictional character in the 1841 novel, The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens. Oh, Initially okay. a comical accessory to the antagonists, he undergoes a transformation, but he is, he's uh, easily manipulated, a fool. He's oh, a dick okay. swiveller.
0: Okay. Yeah. okay, Yeah. I, don't I looked think it he's... up in the background. Yeah, I appreciate you did that, yeah. because I realized I read that and it was capitalized, and I was like, wait, that's gotta be like a reference. What, a, what a fun know. name yeah yeah <laughs> um uh so let's do um i want to get into finnegan's wake and i know we're going a lot of time but this is joyce and it feels like we've got to um i want to read a couple of things that people said about ulysses at the time and these are mostly names that we know okay um as we said virginia Woolf said it was the queasy undergraduate sc- scratching his pim- pimples T.S. Eliot said, Joyce killed the 19th century, exposed the futility of styles, and destroyed his own future. Basically, when he wrote Ulysses, what else were you going to do? There was nothing left for him to write another book about. And yet Bloom tells one nothing. Indeed, this new method of giving the psychology proves to my mind mind that it doesn't work. It doesn't tell as much as some casual glance from outside often tells. Gertrude Stein said, Joyce is good. He is a good writer people like him because he is incomprehensible and anybody can understand it. I don't know what that means exactly, but who came first, Gertrude Stein or James joy. He has had his day. Hemingway. So Uh many
1: flaming egos in this arena. (laughs) Oh (laughs) God. It does remind me of like the podcast wars or sort of like our little niche side of Twitter. You have the little battles that are so uh, SSDD.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, Hemingway. This is he told us the Sherwood Anderson. Hemingway and Joyce would become friends in Paris, actually, and hang out. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I think but, I Joy- that. Joyce yeah. and Hemingway would get. There was a couple instances apparently where like Joyce would get in Paris, would kind of get into trouble at the bar, and would just with like some some rough looking guys.
2: And it would just be like, get, get him, Hem. You, get him. <laughs> that sounds like a gruesome twosome if there ever was. James, <laughs> oh, yeah. James oh, Joyce. James yeah, Joyce spider right.
0: dancing and just like <laughs> speaking in like weird some weird Latin. Yeah, yeah. fine. Um, uh, this is what Hemingway had to say. I think this was maybe before they actually met. Josh, Joyce has a most uh, gosh darn wonderful book. That's not what he said exactly, but it will probably reach you in time. He's talking to Sherwood Anderson here. Meantime, the report is that he and all his family are starving, but you can find the whole Celtic crew of them uh, every night in Mashads, where Binny and I can only afford to go about once a week. Stein says Joyce reminds her of an old woman out in San Francisco. <laughs> John, John Joyce, um, uh, James Joyce's father, read, uh, read some parts of the book and said, well, he's a, a, James is a nice sort of blackguard, isn't he? Which I don't even... <laughs> um, uh, Andre Guide uh, called it a sham masterpiece. Uh, Yeats said, It is perhaps a work of genius. It is an entirely a new thing, neither what the eye sees or the ear hears, but what the rambling mind thinks and imagines from moment to moment. He has certainly surpassed, surpassed in intensity any novelist of our time. Also, Yeats could not finish reading it, which I think is really interesting, among a, among a few other people who. I am going to the have
1: theory. to give this another try. I'm going to have to do it after this episode. And I know that we are going to do something fun with this where I think we'll do, we're going to dump this episode into the brain of Aaron Gwynn, who's friend of the show, did the Faulkner episode, and he's a, a scholar of Joyce. So yeah. I think we might have to hear from him and get his opinions about yeah. where we got it wrong and, and everything else. Uh,
0: that should be fun too. There's plenty to get right and wrong for sure. Yeah. 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 Sounds good. Yeah. Um, so let's get into, let's get into Finnegan's wake because no, uh. he's written, he's written Ulysses. Ulysses is actually, he actually does pretty well with Ulysses. Um, part of the way he got it published was through, um, there was this woman named Sylvia Beach in Paris um, who had a, a bookstore called Shakespeare and Company, and um, she had decided for the first time to publish a publish a book. Um, and then there were some complications with the American version and all of that, but but there was actually quite a bit of enthusiasm. Um, and if you if you were smart and hip and literary, you tried to get your hands on a copy of Ulysses in this nineteen um, you know early to mid nineteen twenties era um you know like i said all these people read it everybody else who was into that world read it um i think it was a little bit probably it's probably a little bit in terms of like where it sat in the culture it was probably a little bit like infinite jest ish where like it had its certain appeal and it's kind of sexiness and like Mm -hmm. you know yeah um and joyce managed to get himself a really sweet uh, royalty deal so he actually made reasonably good money selling ulysses which i think it goes against what i had always thought um i had thought that he put this thing out and then nobody read it for 20 years and then it finally like kind of bubbled to the surface but that is not actually the case um because of copyright issues though it was pirated in america for years um uh, and also in Japan for years, um, so that's just kind of interesting. And he would try and hire lawyers to to sue people that he you know couldn't find and things like that. It was kind of interesting. But but the next thing he started to work on was Finnegan's Wake. So he'd been working on uh, Ulysses for years, and he kind of flips the page and starts to work on Finnegan's Wake. So all this, us what Can anybody tell us anything about Finnegan's Wake? And if well, so, so,
2: can you? <laughs> I think I can tell you a little bit, but what I want to do, um, you know, I feel like such an idiot because earlier I said that I had not directly dealt with Joyce on my podcast. I did an episode on Finnegan's Wake.
0: It was one of the <laughs> earlier ones. You did. And, yeah, I listened I back to that a little bit, actually. When you said that, I was like, wait,
2: okay, well, all right. <laughs> no, it, but yeah, I didn't really you know, there's not a lot of analysis in there. Um, mm-hmm. I did read a bunch from it. And so what I'd like to do is just introduce it by just reading some. So you get okay. a sense of what this is like. Yeah, please do. Uh, yeah. So I'm just going to, I'm going to read the first page of Finnegan's Wake* and probably stumble over it horribly, but let's, uh, let's go anyway. Okay, here we go. River run past even atoms from swerve of shore to bend of bay brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation back to Houth Castle and environs. Sir Tristram, via Lord de Morris, for the short sea had passant corps re arrived from North Armorica on this side the scraggy isthmus of Europe Minor to wield or fight his penisolate war nor had top Sawyer's rocks by the stream Oconee exaggerated themselves to Lawrence County Gorgios while they went Dublin their mumper all the time, nor a voice from a fire bellowed, bellowsed, Misha Misha to Tauf Tauf, tower Petrick, not yet though Venice soon after had a kid scad but ended a bland old Isaac, not yet though all's fair and fantasy were socy roth and with twone Nathan Joe, "'Wrought a pack of paws malt had gem or shen "'brewed by arc light and rory end to the brow, "'was to be seen ringsome on the aqua face. "'The fall, baba ba dal garag taka min aron con bron ton ron thuan thun trovar houn saun skon tu hu hu hurden "'of a once wall-straight old par is retailed early in bed and later on life.' down through all Christian minstrelsy. The great fall of the off-wall entailed at such short notice, the shoot of Finnegan, air-solid man, that the Humpty Hillhead of himself promptly sends an unquiring one to, well to the west in quest of his tumpty Tumtoes, and their upturned pike point in place is at the knock out in the park where oranges have been laid to rust upon the green since Devlin's first love, Livy. Oh yeah, that's clear. That's uh yeah. <laughs> okay, what's you guys get <laughs> anything yeah. out of that? Hmm.
0: It's a little yeah. bit of a psychedelic experience. Like I feel like I can't extract much like tractable content from it. But it feels a certain way, I would say. You could spend hours and
1: hours and hours researching what you just read, trying to figure yes. out what is what is rhyming slang.
2: Right, uh,
1: Cockney rhyming slang in right. in London as a whole thing, right? I'm yeah. sure there's. I'm sure that's in play. I'm sure you would need to know Irish slang, Irish probably Greek, Latin, yeah. other languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a puzzle. It really it, is.
2: It is a puzzle. Although there's a certain musicality to it, and mm-hmm. um, it's it's funny. You you mentioned psychedelic. Like I think it. Um, you know, the first generation of I don't know generation is right, but the the first group of people to to read this were a lot of people who had supported joyce uh through ulysses and they were very dug into the modernist uh aesthetic and a lot of them couldn't go this far with him and and didn't including pound right Um, Pound Pound was was not a fan of this but in the sixties and seventies, you started getting a group of people who did identify this book as like a psychedelic book and they were kind of more into it. Uh, people like, um, uh, Timothy Leary and, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, Terrence McKenna. Um, one of the earlier ones, probably Marshall McLuhan actually, and uh, a lot of his work actually derives from, uh, McLuhan's really kind of obsessive interest in this, um, book. Mm -hmm. Um, So, anyway, um, yeah, it's there are somewhere between 60 and 70 languages actually that feed into Finnegan's Wake. Right. It is English, but um, it's part of it feels like going back and reading like something from, um, uh, like, you know early middle english or something like that maybe mm-hmm. um you know canterbury tales where like you can read it but some of it would need to be translated for you because of uh you know there's still that strong influence of influence of norman french or something right yeah you imagine that what the translation
0: effort would be on, like let's say you were going to translate it into spanish like what do you even how you can know, it even be done yeah, yeah it's incredible. it doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. yeah right. It seems like you would just leave it alone. But so what let's I mean, maybe we kind of now there's this idea that well, Joyce said this, he said many things about Finnegan's Wake. Uh, one is that it was Ulysses was his day book and this was his night book. Um, and I think partially what he impl- was was suggesting by that, not even just suggesting but also said in some of his letters is that he's trying to get he's trying to take that stream of consciousness thing and and move it into the realm of the dream yeah. out, outside of the waking conscious and into the dream but but essentially the same not the same technique but the same f- the same approach i guess Um, it's a stream of unconscious
2: that's that's the thing i was thinking about earlier
0: yeah yeah no that's really well put so it's like so he's so he's doing that but i think what is harder to see unless maybe you read and i've my i have a copy of finnegan's wake and i've had it for years and i remember um i was this was a long time ago i was probably 19 years old or something um and a guy that i worked with had told me that he knew about or had read about some group of people that got together and um, <laughs> they would uh, they would smoke cannabis that had been tainted with uh, um, Formaldehyde, and they would read one page of *Finnegans Wake* out loud to each other. That was like this, like cultic thing they were doing. And so I was like, "This was X. like before I had had no. I mean, this is before college or anything." So I was like, "Wait, what is this book?" <laughs> like, <laughs> and found myself a copy. And then for years afterwards, I never really sat down to try to read it, but I would read. I would skip the formaldehyde, but I would read. <laughs> I would read. I don't Formaldehyde. Don't know I, I. This is. <laughs> what this kid told me he might have been totally making it up um but i would for years i would just flip to a random page and read it and see like if it did anything for me you know um and i'm interested in that process too like can it just work as a page at there
1: is a totemic quality to that book as an object yeah ah, this is a copy of finnegan's wake it's not quite like any other
2: no. book no, yeah. it's really not. It, it, I think it can work that way. I think there's not one way to to look at it. Um, yeah. I, it's not really. It, it's so. It's such a departure from the traditional novel, and I think that mm. it, I think in part it is meant to be read aloud, mm-hmm. um, and maybe often in a group. That's how I I used to do this on St. Patrick's Day, oh, cool. and I would get it. I would get a bunch of people who were drinking hard, and I would. Mm-hmm. I would read this book with them. I didn't even that's know awesome. what was going on. Sometimes I would, you know, you just pass the book to the next person, and they read as long as they can tolerate it, and then you you keep going. So, um, cool. yeah, I can get yeah. into a little bit about what you know we think the book is is about. Y- yeah,
0: but um, I, I want to try to understand it
2: a little bit more. <laughs> what the what the thing's about? Yeah, so the dream thing is is right on. It is um, supposed to be the story of a single night's worth of dreaming in dublin ireland we are still in dublin and you know like technically joyce's books are all in the same universe like you know characters <laughs> from dubliners crop up in ulysses and yeah. i think they're even mentioned here and there in um Finnegans wake oh really okay. um, it, it is um perhaps the dream of one man or maybe the dream of uh different people or one man who is everyone um, the dream contains human history in a vast cycle, uh, which is somewhat based on the um, ideas of a early 18th century thinker named Giambattista Vico, who wrote a book called The New Science, and he had a cyclical theory of history where we passed through an age of uh, gods, an age of heroes, and an age of men. And so that's theocracy, aristocracy, democracy, and then what he called a recurso, which is a return of barbarism in the end of the cycle. And so if you go back to, and so uh, Vico's cycle serves kind of the same function as Homer's Odyssey does in uh, Ulysses. And if you go back to the beginning, the first sentence, it begins river run past even atoms from Swerve of Shore to Bend to Bay brings us by a commodious Vicus of recirculation back to Houth Castle and environs. So we begin by returning and he name checks Vico there and tells us a little bit of what's going on. And so from this um, people, they, they determine when you get to the end of the book, the last word in this book is the, <laughs> yeah, right? So you come to the end of Finnegan's wake, it just cuts off Right. and it's, then you realize that it goes it's back a circle. Yeah, technically, this is the longest book ever written by far because it's infinite. It's infinite, Um. (laughs) right, 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 right. That's fascinating. And he'd said something. Apparently, he had taken him a
0: while to come to using the word. I think he always knew or he knew from early on that he wanted to write it as a cycle. But it it took him a long time. So Ulysses ends with the word yes. um, And he was very cognizant of how you ended the actual final word. And apparently, he wanted to... find he actually wanted to find the weakest word in the english language to end on and and he sort of gradually arrived at. <clears throat> excuse me gradually arrived at the because yeah. he he saw it as almost not even a word it's it's just like a because it can't stand name. by itself it can't yeah. right it doesn't mean anything by itself yeah it's very interesting that he chose he chose that
2: so you know you can and you can break down the title too. So why why is it called Finnegan's Wake? Well, there's a folk song called Finnegan's Wake, and I, I recommend going to listen to it because it's a really cool like Irish drinking song. But the the story of, that's told in the song it's about a bricklayer named Tim, Tim Finnegan who gets too drunk at work. Um, you know, speaking of dealing in Irish stereotypes, uh, nobody, nobody deals with them better than the Irish themselves. But, um, you yeah. know, so Tim, uh, a bit of a tippling way and he falls off a ladder and breaks his skull. And then his friends lay out his body for an Irish wake. And it, like happens, uh, a fight breaks out and they spill liquor all over Tim's body and he wakes up and he's like, oh, what did you think I was dead? Um, So, you know, there's already a pun actually like in the song because he woke up at his wake. And so what Joyce does is um, in the beginning of of this book is he uh, combines Tim Finnegan in the song with the mythical Irish giant Finn McCool, this hunter heroic character. Um, And Finn uh, was supposed to have built the giant's causeway, which is a geometric stone formation in Ireland. And so this mythical Finn is also a bricklayer. And another myth about uh, Finn McCool is that he was said to have not died, but to be asleep in a cave somewhere and will arise one day when Ireland needs him. All right, so we have- wake, yeah. Yeah, we have the wake as well. And so, you know, the, the, the sleeping and waking in, in the, the book is the dream, the falling asleep, dreaming, waking up. And that's that cycle. It's even better than this, though, because the cycle is embedded in the name Finnegan. Mm-hmm. Fin means ending, It means end. And then after Finn is again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. The book exists uh, in man. miniature in one word. Yeah. It's a fractal. Yeah.
0: He, oh, that's so cool. He apparently um, for years, he would call it when he was working on it, he called it the work in progress and he was always trying to goad his friends into guessing what the title was. He was so pleased with it that he would like when he would get drunk, he would at one point, he put he put up like some amount of money and offered to give it to anybody who could guess um he was very like it was, a, it was again a game to him the
2: literary riddler james joy yeah right that's <laughs> right for sure yeah and, and another thing to know is that the title has no apostrophe yeah right yeah. so it can be read in the imperative form finnegan's right. wake Right. Right. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. Finnegan's being like the, the, the sort of, Irish, you know, as a Irish Smith kind of name, right? It's yeah. Like Irish spirit. Yeah. 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 Finnegan. I had not thought
1: about that. Yeah. I love all, I love that kind of wordplay and puns and meaning within meaning. And, yeah. But again, I don't think I'm going to pick this up and <laughs> no, read just it just page read to page. page you know? Yeah. And I should. Yeah. I should get a copy and just have it on the, set it next to the
2: commode. Right. <laughs> right. That's probably a good way to read it. Every time you go yeah. on, just you know, read a couple pages. So, no. one more thing just about the section that we read. You yeah. probably noticed an extremely long and weird word that I kind of awkwardly went <laughs> yeah. through. Um, you did better there. than I would have. Yeah. <laughs> right. After I said the fall. So, this is what is called a thunder word. And um, you mentioned that Joyce was afraid of lightning. Mm-hmm. And so again, like he's, he's layering in his own experience here. Like this is him at his most mythic, but at the same time, it's very personal. And there's a thing in uh, Vico where Vico has this really weird idea that um, Moses or not Moses, um, Noah's uh, sons had apostatized and began wandering the, wor- the, the earth and their children became giants um, uh, and that civilized life, you know, like shrunk people down to normal size and living in this like brutal, like existence that was an unstructured, um, like gave people a larger stature. Um, which by the way, I'm, I'm fa- so fascinated with this idea. I've decided I'm going to do a forest of symbols on giants one day. Oh yeah. I like that. <laughs> but, um, so, but, the beginning of civilization happens when they become afraid of the thunder and lightning, and they interpret this as God, the voice of God, right? And they run off to caves, you know, somewhere. And so Joyce comes up with this, this thing called a thunder word, which happens 10 times throughout Finnegan's wake and it's Vico's, you know, voice of God. And so what he's done is he has, all the whole thing is just a bunch of words for thunder in a bunch of different languages. Um, each, oh. th- each thunder word is a uh, hundred letters, except for the 10th one, I think, which is 101 letters totaling a thousand and one as in a thousand and one nights. Right? right. So again, just endless, you know, semantic layering and, you know, multi, uh, you know, many meanings packed in there. Yeah, that's
1: imbe- a <laughs> <He> never- <laughs> thunderbolts and lightning. Very, very frightening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he he had a phobia of these, didn't he?
0: He did. Yeah. There she were times said, where he wouldn't go from one hmm. place to another because it was storming, or yeah. And I, you know, you kind of wonder as a as an apostate from the Catholic Church who still kind of believes in some way, and who's also you know believes all the superstitions of Europe. Whether he wondered, whether he thought it was like well, this might be the time that God smites me, you know, like <laughs> from my sinful, my sinful nature, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, when I was going to read, I had a little thing about um, Joyce explaining to somebody, I, and this just kind of reflects the the depth of thought about each little part of this book, Finnegan's Wake. Um, so I'm going to just read this part from the Elman biography. And this is just a, a, a example of, of, how he's thinking about the smallest details and Joyce saying it, you know, kind of in Joyce's actual life. So this is why, um, this is why he's working on, on Finnegan's wake during the earlier, early summer. He had help from James Johnson Sweeney, the museum director and art critic who read the manuscript aloud and inserted phrases, which Joyce dictated to him. Um, Joyce, his eyes were getting quite bad as Finnegan's wake went on. Um, They came to a passage, and this is from Finnegan's Wake, Clontarf, one love, one fear. And Joyce asked, do you understand that, Sweeney? Oh, yes, Sweeney said, the last two numbers of the date of the Battle of Clontarf. Joyce Joyce seemed to agree. Later, Sweeney realized that one love would in tennis represent the first two numbers of the date, and the next afternoon, he said, Mr. Joyce, I pretended to understand more of that Clontarf reference than than I did. Joyce replied, oh, yes, the telephone number of that public house. And Sweeney realized that he had still only understood part of the phrase, that Joyce was referring also to Klontarf as the telephone exchange in Shepelzad. They came to the catchphrase, knock-knock, who's there? Joyce had altered it to, knock-knock, wars where? And given for answer, the two twins, with two W's and two N's and the twins. He explained to Sweeney that Cain and Abel were the origin of war. The second W in twins, Joyce said, laughing, was for Eve and meant, as the next phrase indicated, without an apple, for she had been born without an Adam's apple. So every sentence of this thing is just it. It you can zoom in and zoom out on it. It's 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 a fractal almost, in its level yes, of exactly. and it's less referencing right. Um, and so I just wanted to give. It's not certainly not the most. Um, most referenced or most profound sentence from *Finnegans Wake*, but it's it's an example of, of how deep it actually it actually can be. So it's wordplay, it's historical reference, it's it's biblical reference, it's it's everything. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating, really. <sighs> um,
1: How long? Did, I'm exhausted hearing about yeah. this. I really am. <laughs> I I love this stuff. I can I can admit it, that I yeah. admire it, and I and, yeah. and that um Aldous, that interpretation is more insight in, into this novel than I've ever been on the receiving end of. Yeah. So I'm I'm very grateful of that, and yeah. it, it I appreciate that it invites you to look at the book in a different way, to look at language in a different way, and to think about different ways of reading and understanding. And then also is just this incredible monumental challenge. It's the mm-hmm. Kilimanjaro. It's the K2 of, of books.
0: Right. I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he worked on this thing for ultimately 17 years. He worked on Finnegan's wake. Um, and, and I, we, we can, we can continue. We can certainly continue talking about it. Um, I want to give a little bit of historical context of those 17 years, because it starts in Paris. um, uh, And, you know, he's got some, some notoriety and some fame and he's, he's meeting a lot of people in Paris. I mean, he met Stravinsky and he met Marcel Proust and he met, you know, he met kind of everybody. Um, Like I said, Hemingway and things and really kind of got himself ensconced in the, in the art world. Um, And yet a lot of things as Finnegan's awake developed, he, his life was sort of falling apart in, in many ways. So, um, one, and, and this happens on a couple of levels. So one is, and we have to talk about Lucia. Um, Lucia was his daughter. Lucia lost her mind, um, pretty much completely. So, um, let me find this section where I, I kind of have a little bit on her, and I want to get her. I want to get her the dates of a couple things that happened. I want to get them right. Um, Nineteen thirty-two. Um, it's uh, literally on Joyce's fiftieth birthday, right? And this things have been getting worse in this regard. Um, his health had been getting worse. He'd been having eye surgeries. Um, like I said, he probably had syphilis that made his, made his eyes worse. He was starting to have some stomach troubles as well. Um, uh, interestingly, there were some treatments that they did for his eyes and like they early on they were putting leeches on his eyes. So this is still the era of medicine that we're in. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. To get the blood out, right? Oh, so he uh, could he could see, no. so it reduce oh. the inflammation.
1: Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Having a reaction to this, I don't, I don't like this at all. <laughs> Brad, yeah. trust, trust the science,
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Just put a leech on it. I mean, what it worked for Joyce, except it didn't. <laughs> um, but they're also injecting him with uh, they're injecting him with a combination of arsenic and something else. Um, which this is how researchers now believe he had syphilis because you never apparently used this concoction for anything but to treat syphilis. Um, he would also occasionally get treated with scopolamine. And for folks who don't know what scopolamine is, um, scopolamine used to be used, it's it's derived from nightshade, and it used to be used in combination with morphine to put you into twilight sleep. Um, but it's a known deliriant, uh, you know, people there are reports of people using it recreationally though i don't see how that would be pleasant um it's a drug that has been used uh it's used now for nausea and very, very, very tiny doses. Like if you take a, a, a pill or take a patch for seasickness, I think, it'll have like some s- fractional percent scoplamine. So he was getting treated with that. Wasn't um, that an interrogation drug too? That I was think, like the, I think the, the, it the was, truth serum. Yeah, there was, um, there was some stories about in South America not that long ago of people dosing other people with scoplamine because it makes you highly impressionable. And so it would be like you would dose somebody with scoplamine and then you would say, why don't you give me all of your money? And they would (laughs) like. (laughs) So so he was getting so he's writing Finnegan's Wake and it's this deeply referenced thing, but he's also in a lot of pain. And then who knows what effect. Congenital syphilis is having on him, periods of blindness are having on him, the treatments for periods of blindness are having on him, right? The, the, things are a little bit unraveling, even though he's able to, to concentrate enough to, to put this book together. Now, and then also we have Lucia, Joyce's 50th birthday. Lucia, who's been becoming increasingly agitated. Um, this is 1932, so she's uh, 25 or so. Um, yeah, 25. She throws a chair at Nora. Nora was always the target of Lucia's ire. She throws a chair at her, and George, Giorgio, decides to put her in a put her in a, a sanitarium. Um, she's only there for a couple of days before James pulls her out. Um, but this is just the beginning of this like downward slide for Lucia. Um, Lucia fell for Samuel Beckett, who was a translator and sort of friend and assistant and confidant of James Joyce. Um, And for people who don't know, he wrote Waiting for Godot and and a number of other, you know, timeless, timeless works. We'll have to do a Beckett episode eventually as well. Um, So Lucia fell for Samuel Beckett. They apparently had a very brief relationship before Samuel Beckett told her like, hey, you know, the reason that I come over is to see your dad. Right. Like was that kind of like kind of kind of dumped her i guess which didn't help things um they tried to marry lucia off they thought that this might help her maintain her sanity um and that didn't go particularly well um and she just kind of gradually started getting worse and worse and worse she had sort of delusions of grandeur at one moment was super depressed at another moment she liked eventually she would like to set things on fire Um, and she would have very violent outbursts particularly directed at Nora Um, she had an odd I don't know what how to put it there's a relationship she had with James that is you might call it incestuous though I don't think there was any physical relationship there she she was kind of obsessed with him to a certain extent. But the doctors believed that this, they almost had like a folly ado thing going where they were kind of crazy together. Um, And James believed that, James believed that Lucia was like the only person that really understood what he was doing. The way he used to think Nora was the uh-huh. person so you understand the doing. script there and kind of put it on her hmm. right right, and he would see like he would think like she has the same thing wrong with her as I do, except it 's burning her alive whereas it's it's I can manage it somehow that was kind of what, and he claimed that she was clairvoyant that she there were hundreds of times where she had done something that was like psychic essentially um and you know, when he didn't think she was crazy, James, that is, he would think that she was just a confused and stressed out girl and that he could help her by doing things like buying her a fur coat or, you know, just being nice to her um, you, when you were clearly dealing with somebody who had schizophrenia, right? Uh. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of stories from this era of women who were institutionalized because they were, quote unquote, hysterical where where they were really just like sort of strong-minded maybe they were like riotously funny at parties so, you know. right and yeah you put them in a yeah. put them in a home right at yeah. first i thought maybe that's what we were dealing with Lu- lucia and now it's pretty clear that she had some serious mental, mental. issues yeah um and this story mm. kind of never gets better unfortunately mm. um eventually she, um, this is kind of years later, eventually she does get treated by Jung. Um, and let's see, I found, I think I had a thing here about that. Oh, so she did, she was willing to talk with Carl Jung um, for a while. And it seemed like they maybe even had a good rapport. She started to gain some weight and, and, and be a little bit more amiable. But then it kind of just went away, you know, as her condition worsened and Apparently, Jung wasn't quite up to the task. And that suggests to me that at least at that time, maybe nobody was up to the task. Um, And she said, (laughs) she was kind of a wit too. At one point, she said about Jung, to think that such a big, fat, materialistic Swiss man should try to get hold of my soul. She was indignant that this guy would try and would, would try and fix her, right? Oof,
1: yeah. Jung so, is not coming out looking good. No, not, not, in, this, this episode. not in this episode. Yeah. unfortunately, we'll, we'll circle back to him. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So now here's one thing. So, um, it, with with Lucia. You know, I don't want to go on, I could go, we could do an episode about her. She had, she did some dancing um, and then gave up on it. Apparently she, she moved into doing ballet too late. Most, most ballerinas start when they're like eight years old and she'd started too late to develop the toe strength and all that. So that didn't work, but she was quite a talented um, illustrator. Um, and one thing that Joyce did to try and help her like mentally was he paid a publisher to pay her to, um, illustrate the, the first letters in like an, an ABC book for, for children. Um, and apparently that, that was quite good kind of book of Kells inspired. So she wasn't a, a woman without talent. Um, but Jung said, uh, Jung said this about her and her father, um, her and her and James, um, Lucia and her father are like two people going to the bottom of the river, one falling and the other diving. So he thought they basically were kind of the same person, except that James somehow, it was the same to the conclusion that James had, except James was somehow able to swim in this and Lucia could not, she couldn't handle it. Right. And that's what they b- the both takes were on this whole thing. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah. So this is all kind of happening. Um, It keeps devolving. Finally, in 1936, she's taken to an asylum in Paris in a straitjacket, and she's basically in an institution um, until her death in 1982. Um, 82? Yeah. She lived Mm. to be 75 years old and and was basically in in a home of one sort or another, um, Mm. you know, from throughout. That um, must have caused him incredible distress. Oh, yeah. No, he, he blamed himself a lot. I think part of the reason that he was unwilling to admit that she had a problem, at least early on, was because he blamed himself for, this, for raising her in this, like, intransigent lifestyle, right? Yeah, like, no doubt. You know, we moved you, all you over. You rip your and,
1: family out of Ireland, this thing that you wrestle with in your letters, in your writing, your entire right. life, uh, Raised them in Central Europe. Yeah, you know, in, in Italy than in Paris Yeah, and they're not Absolutely. rooted. They're not rooted in the same reality that you were rooted in. And then of course they're not, she falls away from reality.
0: Right. Right. There's right. something so poetic he, about that. Yeah. So he kind of blamed himself and, and, you know, maybe there is some share of the blame, but I, you know, I think um, might've uh,
1: also just straight up schizophrenic.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things that did you, there's certain strains of this where unfortunately you kind of just can't fit into society anymore just some things uh, some things the
1: the leeches just don't fix
0: (laughs) right 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 and there's a whole there's a whole caper during uh the beginnings of world war ii which is kind of crazy where joyce is trying to get her out of one institution and into because she's in she's in paris in an institution when paris gets taken over and he's like trying to get her out and get her into an institution on the west side of france That's this whole this whole thing um but um
1: yeah, I just I mean, got a
0: flag that we are well into the third hour of the yeah,
1: James yeah. Joyce episode. I, I think it's
0: fantastic. Yeah, we're, we're we're getting there. Yeah. I think
1: we are, yes. Yeah. And hopefully you're enjoying the episode. I'm personally very excited for the uh the raunchy love letters that are to come, <laughs> come on the Patreon episode, <laughs> com yeah. slash uh, support has all of the, the stuff. I'm going to say it one more time. Art yeah. slash support. You can, you can send us Bitcoin. You can send us, although maybe I'm looking at the chart right now. Maybe don't send Bitcoin. Wait, wait for it to pump. Um, <laughs> Um, you know
0: if they're turning it into dollars we want them to do it when it's yeah you know
1: whatever whatever you
0: feel you know the show is worth we just we just are are
1: kicking (laughs) out three hours of uh of free content for you so if you want to support the show please do that and uh i want to thank um aldis as well that that take uh, on Finnegans Wake was tremendous. Where else are you going to get stuff like this? Um, yeah. I, I'm really enjoying this. I'm not trying to cut you off, Brad. I just nope. I want to flag that. And it, the time has flown by. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, All right. it's so it's a lot of material. It's a lot of material to cover. Um, this and, one and,
1: is a whale.
0: Yeah. Now I don't have a whole lot more biographical stuff. I mean, I could have went on forever, but um, Finnegans Wake. Um, he publishes it shortly, I mean, he doesn't live much longer after he publishes. He publishes in 39, dies in 41. His health is a wreck in that intermediary period. His eyes are terrible. Like I said, gradually, he's just being able to see less and less and less and less and less. Um, and, uh, And this is one of the things that's phenomenal to me about the density of reference in Finnegan's Wake is how do you read the stuff you need to read to write that book? if you literally can't see like i I don't know i almost don't understand the logistics of it in a way yeah i think about that a lot right let's like how do you yeah and and it's amazing and he for years he had to read everything through a magnifying glass and that was when he that was on a good day you know um so can you maybe um one thing i feel like we didn't totally maybe talk about is there is there a story to finnegan's wake the novel itself like if you could, could you could a person write a obviously highly abridged, but like a children's story version of the plot, where like this happens, then this happens, then this happens, or is that
2: so, sort of? And some yeah. summaries have been uh, written, but the thing is, not not everybody exactly agrees, yeah. um, of uh, about what happens. Um, but we can broadly say um, that there are characters. Um, and it it revolves, but the thing is, it's a dream. So characters are like changing and merging, Um, but they seem to be formed out of a single family. Um, And the father is uh, known as HCE. The father and mother are known by these letter groupings. And so HCE, stands for a whole bunch of names and i'll, I'll read a few of them because it's pretty yeah. funny yeah. uh the main one uh, appears to be humphrey chimpden Earwicker and uh is also known you, you you'll recall if you you know listen carefully to the intro there we began at Houth castle and environs and that's hce so you'll start to see every time hc an hce combo comes up you're, that's that's who you're dealing with Um, And and just as an aside, the the funny thing about, like, how crazy and abstract the opening page seems, we are at a specific place. Houth Castle is is a real place in Ireland, and there's this little, like, peninsular area called Houth, and... In fact, um, we end Ulysses, th- sort of in Houth, we're, we're, we're in Molly's head, she's remembering when Bloom proposed to her, and they were on Houth Head, which is quite near Houth Castle. So we're in Houth Castle and environments, in, environs going past uh, Even Adams, which is a church that's there. So we're in a specific place. Um, and, you know, we're, we're running the, the, the so we have HCE, uh, who is also hod cement and edifices. Here mm-hmm. comes everybody. That's probably the best because it, you know, uh, explains, everybody. you know, who he is. Uh, it's every man, all the Finnegan's. Uh-huh. Uh, Haveth Childers everywhere. Hive, comb, and earwax. He can oh. explain <laughs> and sometimes it shows up in reverse uh, as an eagle cock Hostel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, And the mother is uh, ALP um, or Anna Olivia Pluribel. Mm. And among other things, Anna is the River Liffey, mm. which runs through the city of Dublin and empties into Dublin Bay. Uh, or she is the river and HCE is uh, the city Dublin itself. Um, so there, there are these actual people and then there are also these, um, these physical parts of the landscape and there are these other abstract things. Uh, mm-hmm. but as actual people, they are, uh, pub owners, um, HCE, uh, Earwicker is probably the, the main name that he's known by. And he is a, uh, Earwicker is a, is a real name. It's, uh, um, they are, uh, he's descended from, uh. He's Norwegian, right? And this is another, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's another outsider. So we have a Jewish uh, hero of, of Ulysses and we have a Norwegian um, hero of uh, Finnegan's Wake uh, descended from Vikings. And there there may be a pun on Vico here, but he's like an invader, <laughs> right? An outsider. Right. right. Um, and so anyways, they are pub owners and and their like, non-dream names might be Porter. I'm not 100% sure about that. Okay. Um, but they have two sons known as Shem and Sean, Shem the pen man and Sean the post. Um, and they are, uh, well, so Shem is the archetype of the artist and Sean is the archetype of um, the politician, I guess we could say. You know, Shem is the the writer uh, and then Sean is the one who sort of controls the means of disseminating the the message right and so they're engaged in uh, a constant um kind of battle which usually takes a form of just like interrogation and things like that but uh it's kind of a rivalry that stands in for every kind of human competition and war they're also um james and his brother as well ah, right, this is this right. is also a personal um uh it's all brothers of all time, right? In yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Shem, and so Shem is, is James Joyce, um, which he puns on his own name, uh, calling himself shame's voice, uh, in Finnegan's <laughs> wake. Um, there's also a daughter named Issy, uh, which is, she's Isis. She is a She's, uh, all these other things. So, yeah, I don't want to like go through like, Nah, we, there's yeah, a lot of different events point, and stuff but i i think you you can kind of get the picture there, there's uh kind of this one central mythical family and, and certain things that yeah happen to yeah. them throughout i think by
0: seeing them how they're all multiple of these characters i think that that's where you can kind of start to understand what he was what we're talking about in terms of trying to take the stream of consciousness into the dream right mm-hmm. it's 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 the metaphorical multivalency of everything and how he's, he's compounding all of that. Um, uh, uh, may I say yeah. something? I'm on the
1: Wikipedia and, and of Fittigan's Wake, Joyce said, every syllable can be justified.
0: that doesn't (laughs) that doesn't surprise me i had one thing i was gonna read which is, and and i won't just because for time but he of all the various ways in which he had to defend he defended finnegan's wake and well that was one of them yeah every syllable can be justified he did carefully think about all of them um i think maybe we kind of draw down now just because we've kind of hit most of his life i will say um that he he um World War II eventually kind of came crashing down their he- on their heads, living in Paris, and he had to retreat to Zurich um, where he lasted about a year in zurich before um, before being uh, i think he had a, he had an ulcer that ruptured or something along those lines, and then he had a surgery and then very very rapidly after he passed away and is buried in Zurich, Nora stayed in Zurich. Um, and despite all of their fighting and their arguing, she had a number of very good things to say about him. It was very sweet. She said, you know, it's very dull when James isn't around. He was always up to something. Um, and, and, and clearly missed him. Though after he passed, she, she kind of started going back to church and returning, returning to the church. Um, one thing I guess maybe we can kind of leave it on here. I, I've got a, a couple of sentences to read from the very end of Finnegan's Wake. Um, and I want to, I want to remind her where we started a little bit, where he meets Nora, James meets Nora near the river Liffey. He's a nobody. He thinks he's a genius, all of this. And he meets Nora and he says, is there one who understands, right? This is what he says in a very early letter to Nora. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple sentences here until it starts to not make sense. This is in the last, last section of Finnegan's Wake. I'd done my me best when I was let thinking always if I go, all goes. A hundred cares, a tithe of trouble. And is there one who understands me? One in a, thousand, in a thousand of years of the nights. All me life I have been lived among them, but now they are becoming loathed to me, and I am loathing their little warm tricks, and loathing their mean cozy turns, and all the greedy gushes out, of, out their, through their small souls, and all the lazy leaks down over their brash bodies. How small it's all and me letting on to meself always, and jilting on all the time. I thought you were all glittering with the noblest of carriage. You're only a bumpkin. I thought you great in all things, and guilt and in glory. You're but a puny. Home. My people were not their sort out, out beyond there, so far as I can. For all the bold and bad and bleary, they are blamed, the sea hags. No, for all our, for, nor for all our wild dances and all their wild din, I can see meself among them. Alanivia, Poltrabeld how she was handsome, the wild amazia, when she would seize me to her other breast, and what is the weird haughty nelunia. Um, and then we can read just up to the, the last sentence because it sounds kind of dour, and then it gets kind of, it gets kind of elevated. Uh, yes, carry me along, Taddy, like you done through the toy fair, which is a callback to something he did with Giorgio. If I'd seen him bearing down in me now under white-spread wings like he'd come from archangels, I'd, I'd sink, I'd die down over his feet, humbly-dumbly, only to wash up. Yes, tid, there's where, first, we pass through grass, be hush the bush to, wish, a gull, gulls, far calls, coming far, end here, us then, fin again, take bus, bus off flee, memory, till thousands thee, lips, the key to, given, Away, alone, a last, a loved, a long, the. And that's where it ends, as we said. So not that I'm expecting everybody to understand all of that necessarily, but that thing, one of the last things he wrote is, is there one who understands me? I think that's ultimately what Joyce was trying to do through all of this craziness and all of this genius. Um, and we're still, we're still trying, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm in I'm inspired uh, to to pick up copies of Ulysses and of Finnegan's Wake. Brad, we have a link to a bookstore through the website, don't we? We do,
0: yeah. Yeah. Bookshop.org. Yeah. Uh, you can go through on the artofdarkpod.com and click on the bookstore link. We have an affiliate thing there. We get a you know, we get some sense yeah. to buy a book
1: yeah well and so to wind this down how did he how did he pass away what what finally took him
0: yeah so it was um i believe it was uh let's see so it was a stomach issue he'd been having pretty stomach serious stomach ailments so despite all of his eye stuff um he he ultimately he had to have a surgery oh one thing worth noting the last postcard he ever wrote was to his brother uh stanislaw um Mm. And Stanislaw had been uh excav- he had been because of World War II, World War I, he'd spent in prison, World War II, he was a refugee from from Trieste. Um and ended up in Florence. And James had sent him out a postcard, a list of names of people who might be able to help him. That was the last, that was the last thing he ever wrote, actually, was a postcard of trying to help his brother, which is pretty cool. Um, but uh yeah, it was a—I can't remember the name of it. It was a stomach thing, and they performed surgery. Um, and he didn't last long after the sur- surgery. Still, fairly—I understood. You know, not, yeah. not, not the best. And sure. so he was—he was on his way out. And, and in the Irish tradition, they they buried him uh, pretty quickly. So
1: is he—is he buried in
0: Dublin? He's buried in Zurich. Oh, he was buried in Zurich. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. yeah so if you All want to right. go to Zurich, take look for it. I think his gravestone is marked. And Nora is Nora is buried there as well, but she's not buried next to him. She's buried like two graves over. Yeah. Oh my goodness! The <laughs> Irish genes get around. I'm looking at, at a picture of him as a as a kid, and he
1: looks like he could be like a distant relation of mine. Right? Too, right. too strange. Right. And what a banger! So I'm gonna <laughs> so. that was that was oh, well over three hours. We're gonna yeah. do more, and we're gonna get into the dirty, filthy mind of James Joyce, ah, in particular his yeah. his letters to Nora, the thing yes. that kept them together, presumably. Um, yeah. but, but we do have a final Art of Darkness question. I want to thank you aldis for coming on that was really that was uh, insightful and i you know i think we will have you on too if you're game for a part two with our friend aaron gwynn uh again because gwynn himself is a, a renowned novelist a novelist of note and he is he is throwing himself at us to do it to do this episode to follow <laughs> yeah. up he really is he's very excited yeah. we love aaron yeah. Aaron's am of to the show okay yeah. great and Down's again he, it. he, it's been yes, my pleasure
2: it. it's been a lot of fun good. Mm-hmm. I'm glad. Yeah, and I, yeah. I have
1: one final Art of Darkness question, um, and I think we'll give it to you, um, Aldis. Uh, people can find you at Aldis Asterian on Twitter. We're going to continue on to the Patreon. Also, Forest of Symbols podcast. Very good, very interesting um, material there. If you liked what he had going on here, that's just a taste of what he does on that, that fine show. Uh, but, Aldis, the question we ask at the end uh, is, uh, what would James Joyce be doing now if he was alive? <laughs> Of, uh, today, what do you think?
2: You know, it's it's hard to believe that he wouldn't be online in some way. Uh, <laughs> you know, you mentioned that he did try to run a movie theater in mm-hmm. in Dublin, like the first one that was ever established there. Yeah, and uh, he was interested in you know, even though he is a literary man first and foremost, he was interested in like the new media that was coming up. Radio and TV does get referenced in *Finnegans Wake*. So, you know, I feel like he he could have been a poster. He could have been yeah. a schizo poster. I right. mean, really. Oh, yeah, you would have been the greatest <laughs> The something. ultimate yeah. schizo poster. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. He'd have like five ults and they'd all be talking to one another. <laughs> yeah. And you wouldn't quite know, is this one dude? What is this? Right.
0: Yeah, yeah he'd be playing 5D chess for sure. Yeah. Mm.
1: You know. guys this is tremendous let's do another yep. 30 minutes on the after dark brad uh, wonderful work with the research thanks, yeah, and uh, thank you i really appreciate it stately plump buck brad kelly <laughs> 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 all right Excellent. guys later Bye. thanks alvis